0: Secret Societies and Subversive Movements by Nesta H. Webster Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes There is in Italy a power which we seldom mention in this house. I mean the secret societies. It is useless to deny, because it is impossible to conceal that a great part of Europe, the whole of Italy and France and a portion of Germany, To say nothing of other countries is covered with a network of these secret societies, just as the superficies of the earth are now being covered with railroads. And what are their objects? They do not attempt to conceal them. They do not want constitutional government. They do not want ameliorated institutions. They want to change the tenure of land, to drive out the present owners of the soil, and to put an end to ecclesiastical establishments. Some of them may go further. Disraeli and the House of Commons, July 14, 1856 Preface It is a matter of some regret to me that I have been unable so far to continue the series of studies on the French Revolution, of which the Chevalier de Bouffla and the French Revolution, a study in Democracy, formed the first two volumes. But the state of the world at the end of the Great War seemed to demand an inquiry into the present phase of the revolutionary movement, hence my attempt to follow its course up to modern times in world revolution. And now, before returning to that first cataclysm, I have felt impelled to devote one more book to the revolution as a whole, by going this time further back into the past and attempting to trace its origins from the first century of the Christian era. For it is only by taking a general survey of the movement— that it is possible to understand the causes of any particular phase of its existence. The French Revolution did not arise merely out of the conditions or ideas peculiar to the 18th century, nor the Bolshevik Revolution out of political and social conditions in Russia, or the teaching of Karl Marx. Both these explosions were produced by forces which, making use of popular suffering and discontent, had long been gathering strength for an onslaught not only on Christianity but on all social and moral order. It is of immense significance to notice with what resentment this point of view is met in certain quarters. When I first began to write on revolution, a well-known London publisher said to me, Remember that if you take an anti-revolutionary line, you will have the whole literary world against you. This appeared to me extraordinary. Why should the literary world sympathize with a movement which from the French Revolution onwards has always been directed against literature, art, and science, and has openly proclaimed its aim to exalt the manual workers over the intelligentsia? Writers must be proscribed as the most dangerous enemies of the people, said Robespierre. His colleague Dumas said all clever men should be guillotined. The system of persecution against men of talents was organized. They cried out in the sections of Paris, Beware of that man, for he has written a book. Precisely the same policy has been followed in Russia. Under moderate socialism, in Germany the professors, not the people, are starving in garrets. Yet the whole press of our country is permeated with subversive influences. Not merely in partisan works, but in manuals of history or literature for use in schools. Burke is reproached for warning us against the French Revolution and Carlyle's panegyric is applauded. And whilst every slip on the part of an anti-revolutionary writer is seized upon by the critics and held up as an example of the whole, the most glaring errors, not only of conclusions but of facts, pass unchallenged if they happen to be committed by a partisan of the movement. The principle laid down by Colette de Herbois still holds good. Tout est pour qu'ils sont agitants les sens de la révolution. All this was unknown to me when I first embarked on my work. I knew that French writers of the past had distorted facts to suit their own political views. But a conspiracy of history is still directed by certain influences in the Masonic Lodges and the Sorbonne. I did not know that this conspiracy was being carried on in this country. Therefore, the publisher's warning did not daunt me. If I was wrong, either in my conclusions or facts, I was prepared to be challenged. Should not years of laborious historical research meet either with recognition or with reasoned and scholarly refutation? But although my book received a great many generous and appreciative reviews in the press, criticisms which were hostile took a form which I had never anticipated. Not a single honest attempt was made to refute either my French Revolution or World Revolution by the usual methods of controversy, statements founded on Documentary evidence were met with flat contradiction, unsupported by a shred of counter-evidence. In general, the plan adopted was not to disprove, but to discredit by means of flagrant misquotations, by attributing to me views I had never expressed, or even by means of offensive personalities. It will surely be admitted that this method of attack is unparalleled in any other sphere of literary controversy. It is interesting to notice that precisely the same line was adopted a hundred years ago with regard to Professor Robeson and the Abbe Baruel, whose works on the secret causes of the French Revolution created an immense sensation in their day. The legitimate criticisms that might have been made on their work find no place in the diatribes leveled against them. Their enemies content themselves merely with calumnies and abuse. A contemporary American writer, Seth Payson, thus describes the methods employed to discredit them. The testimony of Professor Robeson and Abby Berwell would doubtless have been considered as ample in any case which did not interest the prejudices and passions of men against them. The scurrility and odium with which they have been loaded is perfectly natural, and with the nature of their testimony, would have led one to expect. Men will endeavor to invalidate that evidence, which tends to unveil their dark designs. And it cannot be expected that those who believe that the end sanctifies the means will be very scrupulous as to their measures. Certainly, he was not who invented the following character and arbitrarily applied it to Dr. Robison, which might have been applied with as much propriety to any other person in Europe or America. The character here referred to is taken from the American Mercury printed at Hartford. September 26, 1799, by E. Babcock. In this paper, on the pretended authority of Professor Ebling, we are told that Robison had lived too fast for his income and to supply deficiencies had undertaken to alter a bank bill, that he was detected and fled to France, that having been expelled the Lodge of Edinburgh, he applied in France for the second grade but was refused, that he made the same attempt in Germany and afterwards in Russia, but never succeeded and from this entertained the bitterest hatred to masonry. And after wandering about Europe for two years by writing to Secretary Dundas and presenting a copy of his book, which, it was judged, would answer certain purposes of the ministry, the prosecution against him was stopped. The professor returned in triumph to his country and now lives upon a handsome pension, instead of suffering the fate of his predecessor, Dodd. Payson goes on to quote a writer in The National Intelligencer of January 1801 who styles himself a friend to truth and speaks of Professor Robeson as a man distinguished by abject dependence on a party, by the base crimes of forgery and adultery, and by frequent paroxysms of insanity. Mournier goes still further, and in his pamphlet De l'Influence, Attribute aux Philosophies, Frank Macon, etc., Illumines, etc. Inspired by the Illuminatus Bode, quotes a story that Robeson suffered from a form of insanity which consisted in his believing that the posterior portion of his body was made of glass. In support of all this farrago of nonsense, there is, of course, no foundation of truth. Robeson was a well-known savant who lived sane and respected to the end of his days. On his death, Watt wrote of him, he was a man of the clearest head and the most science of anybody I have ever known. John Playfair, in a paper read before the Royal Society of Edinburgh in 1815, whilst criticizing his proofs of a conspiracy, though at the same time admitting he himself never had access to the documents Robeson had consulted, paid the following tribute to his character and erudition. His range in science was most extensive, he was familiar with the whole circle of the accurate sciences. Nothing can add to the esteem which they, i.e., those who were personally acquainted with him, felt for his talents and worth, or to the respect in which they now hold his memory. Nevertheless, the lies circulated against both Robeson and Barrowell were not without effect. Thirteen years later, we find another American, this time a Freemason, confessing with shame and grief and indignation that he had been carried away by the flood of vituperation poured upon Beruel and Robeson during the last thirty years, that the title pages of their works were fearful to him, and that although wishing calmly and candidly to investigate the character of Freemasonry, he refused for months to open their books. Yet, when in 1827 he read them for the first time, he was astonished to find what they showed, a manifest tendency towards Freemasonry. Both Beruel and Robeson, he now realized, were learned men, candid men, lovers of their country, who had a reverence for truth and religion. They give the reasons for their opinions. They quote their authorities, naming the author and page like honest people. They both had a wish to rescue British Masonry from the condemnation and fellowship of continental Masonry, and appeared to be sincerely actuated by the desire of doing good by giving their labors to the public. What the author was right here in his description of Beruwell's attitude to Freemasonry is shown by Beruwell's own words on the subject. England, above all, is full of those upright men, excellent citizens, men of every kind and in every condition of life, who count it an honor to be Masons, and who are distinguished from other men only by ties which seem to strengthen those of benevolence and fraternal charity. It is not the fear of offending a nation amongst which I have found a refuge which prompts me to make this exception. Gratitude would prevail with me over all such terrors, and I should say in the midst of London England is lost. She will not escape the French Revolution if the Masonic lodges resemble those I have to unveil. I would even say more. Government and all Christianity would long ago have been lost in England if one could suppose its Freemasons to be initiated into the last mysteries of the sect. In another passage, Barrowell observes that Masonry in England is a society composed of good citizens in general, whose chief object is to help each other by principles of equality, which for them is nothing else but universal fraternity. And again, let us admire it, the wisdom of England, for having known how to make a real source of benefit to the state out of those same mysteries which elsewhere conceal a profound conspiracy against the state and religion. The only criticism British Freemasons may make on this verdict is that Beruel regards Masonry as a system which originally contained an element of danger that has been eliminated in England, whilst they regard it as a system originally innocuous into which a dangerous element was inserted on the continent. Thus, according to the former conception, Freemasonry might be compared to one of the brass shell cases brought back from the battlefields of France and converted into a flower pot holder whilst, according to the latter, it resembles an innocent brass flowerpot holder, which has been used as a receptacle for explosives. The fact is that, as I shall endeavor to show in the course of this book, Freemasonry being a composite system, there is some justification for both these theories. In either case, it will be seen that Continental Masonry alone stands condemned. The plan of representing Robeson and Barwell as the enemies of British Masonry can therefore only be regarded as a method for discrediting them in the eyes of the British Freemasons, and consequently for bringing the latter over to the side of their antagonists. Exactly the same method of attack has been directed against those of us who during the last few years have attempted to warn the world of the secret forces working to destroy civilization. In my own case, even the plan of accusing me of having attacked British Masonry has been adopted without the shadow of a foundation from the beginning I've always differentiated between British and Grand Orient masonry and have numbered high British Masons amongst my friends but what is the main charge brought against us like Robeson and Berwell we are accused of raising a false alarm of creating a bogey or of being the victims of an obsession up to a point this is comprehensible Whilst on the continent the importance of a secret societies is taken as a matter of course and the libraries of foreign capitals teem with books on the question people in this country really imagine that secret societies are things of the past articles to this effect appeared quite recently in two leading london newspapers whilst practically nothing of any value has been written about them in our language during the last 100 years hence ideas that are commonplace on the continent here appear sensational and extravagant. The mind of the Englishman does not readily accept anything he cannot see, or even sometimes anything he can see, which is unprecedented in his experience. So that, like the West American farmer confronted for the first time by the sight of a giraffe, his impulse is to cry out angrily, I don't believe it. But whilst making all allowance for honest ignorance and incredulity, it is impossible not to recognize a certain method in the manner in which the cry of obsession or bogey is raised. For it will be noticed that people who specialize on other subjects are not described as obsessed. We did not hear, for example, that the late Professor Einstein had relativity on the brain, because he wrote and lectured exclusively on this question. Nor do we hear it suggested that Mr. Howard Carter is obsessed with the idea of Tutankhamun and that it would be well if he were to set out for the South Pole by way of a change. Again, all those who warn the world concerning eventualities they conceive to be a danger are not accused of creating bogeys. Thus, although Lord Roberts was denounced as a scaremonger for urging the country to prepare for defense against a design openly avowed by Germany, both in speech and print, And in 1921, the Duke of Northumberland was declared the victim of a delusion for believing in the existence of a plot against the British Empire, which had been proclaimed in a thousand revolutionary harangues and pamphlets. People who, without bothering to produce a shred of documentary evidence, had sounded the alarm on the menace of French imperialism, and asserted that our former allies were engaged in building a vast fleet of aeroplanes in order to attack our coasts they were not held to be either scaremongers or insane. On the contrary, although some of these same people were proved by events to have been completely wrong in their prognostications at the beginning of the Great War, they are still regarded as oracles and sometimes even described as thinking for half Europe. Another instance of this kind may be cited in the case of Mr. John Spargo author of a small book entitled The Jew and American Ideals. On page 37 of this work, Mr. Spargo, in refuting the accusations brought against the Jews, observes, Belief in widespread conspiracies directed against individuals or the state is probably the commonest form assumed by the human mind when it loses its balance and its sense of proportion. Yet on page 6, Mr. Spargo declares that when visiting this country in September and October 1920, I found in England, great nationwide organizations, obviously well-financed, devoted to the sinister purpose of creating anti-Jewish feeling and sentiment. I found special articles in influential newspapers devoted to the same evil purpose. I found at least one journal, obviously well-financed, exclusively devoted to the fostering of suspicion, fear, and hatred against the Jew. And in the bookstores, I discovered a whole library of books devoted to the same end. It will be seen, then, that a belief in widespread conspiracies is not always to be regarded as a sign of loss of mental balance, even when these conspiracies remain completely invisible to the general public. For those of us who were in London during the period of Mr. Spargo's visit saw nothing of the things he describes here. Where, we ask, were these great nationwide organizations striving to create anti-Jewish sentiments? What were their names? By whom were they led? It is true, however, that there were nationwide organizations in existence here at this date instituted for the purpose of combating Bolshevism. Is anti-Bolshevism then synonymous with anti-Semitism? This is the conclusion to which one is inevitably led. For it will be noticed that anyone who attempts to expose the secret forces behind the revolutionary movement Whether he mentions Jews in this connection, or even if he goes out of his way to exonerate them, will incur the hostility of the Jews and their friends and will still be described as anti-Semite. The realization of this fact has led me particularly to include the Jews in the study of secret societies. The object of the present book is therefore to carry further the inquiry I began in World Revolution by tracing the course of revolutionary ideas through secret societies from the earliest times, indicating the role of the Jews only where it is to be clearly detected, but not seeking to implicate them where good evidence is not forthcoming. For this reason I shall not base assertions on merely anti-Semite works, but principally on the writings of the Jews themselves. In the same way, with regard to secret societies, I shall rely, as far as possible, on the documents and admissions of their members on which point I have been able to collect a great deal of fresh data, entirely corroborating my former thesis. It should be understood that I do not propose to give a complete history of secret societies, but only of secret societies in their relation to the revolutionary movement. I shall therefore not attempt to describe the theories of occultism, nor to inquire into the secrets of Freemasonry but simply to relate the history of these systems in order to show the manner in which they have been utilized for a subversive purpose. If I then fail to convince the incredulous that secret forces of revolution exist, it will not be for want of evidence. Nesta H. Webster Part 1. The Past Chapter 1. The Ancient Secret Tradition The East is the cradle of secret societies. For whatever end they may have been employed, the inspiration and methods of most of those mysterious associations, which have played so important a part behind the scenes of the world's history, will be found to have emanated from the lands where the first recorded acts of the great human drama were played out. Egypt, Babylon, Syria, and Persia. On the one hand, Eastern mysticism, on the other, Oriental love of intrigue, framed the systems later on to be transported to the West, with results so tremendous and far-reaching. In the study of secret societies, we have then a double line to follow, the course of associations enveloping themselves in secrecy for the pursuit of esoteric knowledge, and those using mystery and secrecy for an ulterior and usually a political purpose. But esotericism again presents a dual aspect. Here, as in every phase of earthly life, there is the Revere de la Medelle, white and black, light and darkness, the heaven and hell of the human mind. The quest for hidden knowledge may end with initiation into divine truths or into dark and abominable cults. Who knows with what forces he may be brought in contact beyond the veil. Initiation, which leads to making use of spiritual forces, whether good or evil, is therefore capable of raising man to greater heights, or of degrading him to lower depths than he could have ever reached by remaining on the purely physical plane. And when men thus unite themselves in associations, a collective force is generated, which may exercise immense influence over the world around, hence the importance of secret societies. Let it be said once and for all, secret societies have not always been formed for evil purposes. On the contrary, many have arisen from the highest aspirations of the human mind, the desire for knowledge of eternal verities. The evil arising from such systems has usually consisted in the perversion of principles that once were pure and holy. If I do not insist further on this point, it is because a vast literature has already been devoted to the subject, so that it need only to be touched on briefly here. Now, from the earliest times, groups of initiates, or wise men, have existed, claiming to be in possession of esoteric doctrines known as the Mysteries, incapable of apprehension by the vulgar, and relating to the origin and end of man, the life of the soul after death, and the nature of God or the gods. It is this exclusive attitude which constitutes the essential difference between the initiates of the ancient world and the great teachers of religion with whom modern occultists seek to confound them. For whilst religious teachers such as Buddha and Mohammed sought for divine knowledge in order that they might impart it to the world, the initiates believed that sacred mysteries should not be revealed to the profane, but should remain exclusively in their own keeping. Although the desire for initiation might spring from the highest aspiration, the gratification, whether real or imaginary, of this desire often led to spiritual arrogance and abominable tyranny, resulting in the fearful trials, the tortures, physical and mental, ending even at times in death, to which the neophyte was subjected by his superiors. The Mysteries According to a theory current in occult and Masonic circles, certain ideas were common to all the more important mysteries thus forming a continuous tradition handed down through succeeding groups of initiates of different ages and countries. Amongst these ideas is said to have been the conception of the unity of God. Whilst to the multitude it was deemed advisable to preach polytheism, since only in this manner could the plural aspects of the divine be apprehended by the multitude, the initiates themselves believed in the existence of one supreme being the creator of the universe, pervading and governing all things. Le Plongeon, whose object is to show an affinity between the sacred mysteries of the Mayas and of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Greeks, asserts that the idea of a sole and omnipotent deity who created all things seems to have been the universal belief in early ages amongst all the nations that had reached a high degree of civilization. This was the doctrine of the Egyptian priests. The same writer goes on to say that the doctrine of a supreme deity composed of three parts distinct from each other yet forming one was universally prevalent among the civilized nations of America, Asia, and the Egyptians, and that the priests and learned men of Egypt, Chaldea, India, or China kept it a profound secret and imparted it only to a few select among those initiated in the sacred mysteries. This view has been expressed by many other writers, yet lacks historical proof. That monotheism existed in Egypt before the days of Moses is, however, certain. Adolf Erman asserts that, even in the early times, the educated class believed all the deities of the Egyptian religion to be identical, and that the priests did not shut their eyes to this doctrine, but strove to grasp the idea of the one God divided into different persons by poesy and myth. The priesthood, however, has not the courage to take the final step, to do away with those distinctions which they declared to be immaterial, and to adore the one God under the one name. It was left to Amenhotep IV, later known as Iknoten, to proclaim this doctrine openly to the people. Professor Breasted has described the hymns of praise to the sun god, which Iknoten himself wrote on the walls of the Amarna tomb chapels. They show us the simplicity and beauty of the young king's faith in the sole God. He had gained the belief that one God created not only all the lower creatures, but also all races of men, both Egyptians and foreigners. Moreover, the king saw in his God a kindly Father who maintained all his creatures by his goodness. In all the progress of men which had followed through thousands of years, no one had ever before caught such a vision of the great Father of all. May not the reason why Ikimnaton was later described as a heretic be that he violated the code of the priestly hierarchy by revealing this secret doctrine to the profane? Hence, too, perhaps the necessity in which the king found himself of suppressing the priesthood, which by persisting in its exclusive attitude kept what he perceived to be the truth from the minds of the people. The earliest European center of the mysteries appears to have been Greece, where the Eleusinian mysteries existed at a very early date. Pythagoras, who was born in Samos about 582 BC, spent some years in Egypt, where he was initiated into the mysteries of Isis. After his return to Greece, Pythagoras is said to have been initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries and attempted to found a secret society in Samos. But this proving unsuccessful, he journeyed on to Cretona in Italy, where he collected around him a great number of disciples and finally established his sect. This was divided into two classes of initiates. The first admitted only into the exoteric doctrines of the Master, with whom they were not allowed to speak until after a period of five years probation. The second consisting of the real initiates, to whom all the mysteries of the esoteric doctrines of Pythagoras were unfolded. This course of instruction, given after the manner of the Egyptians by means of images and symbols, began with geometrical science, in which Pythagoras, during his stay in Egypt, had become an adept, and led up finally to abstruse speculations concerning the transmigration of the soul and the nature of God, who was represented under the conception of a universal mind diffused through all things. It is, however, as the precursor of secret societies formed later in the west of Europe, that the sect of Pythagoras enters into the scope of this book. Early Masonic tradition traces Freemasonry partly to Pythagoras, who was said to have traveled in England, and there is certainly some reason to believe that his geometrical ideas entered into the system of the operative guilds of Masons. The Jewish Kabbalah According to Fabra d'Olive, Moses, who was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, drew from the Egyptian mysteries a part of the oral tradition, which was handed down to the leaders of the Israelites. That such an oral tradition, distinct from the written word embodied in the Pentateuch, did descend from Moses, and that it was later committed to the writing in the Talmud, and the Kabbalah is the opinion of many Jewish writers. The first form of the Talmud, called the Mishnah, appeared in about the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., a little later, a commentary was added under the name of the Gemara. These two works composed the Jerusalem Talmud, which was revised in the 3rd to the 5th century. This later edition was named the Babylonian Talmud and is the one now in use. The Talmud relates mainly to the affairs of everyday life, the laws of buying and selling, of making contracts, also to external religious observances, on all of which the most meticulous details are given. As a Jewish writer has expressed it, the oddest rabbinical conceits are elaborated through many volumes with the finest dialectic and the most absurd questions are discussed with the highest efforts of intellectual power. For example, how many white hairs may a red cow have and yet remain a red cow? What sorts of scabs require this or that purification? Whether a louse or a flea may be killed on the Sabbath, the first being allowed while the second is a deadly sin. Whether the slaughter of an animal ought to be executed at the neck or the tail. Whether the high priest put on his shirt or his hose first. Whether the jabom, that is, the brother of a man who died childless, being required by law to marry the widow, is relieved from his obligation if he falls off a roof and sticks in the mire. But it is in the Kabbalah, a Hebrew word signifying reception, that is to say, a doctrine orally received, that the speculative and philosophical or rather the theosophical doctrines of Israel are to be found. These are contained in two books, the Sefer Yetzirah and the Zohar. The Sefer Yetzirah, or Book of the Creation, is described by Itersheim as a monologue on the part of Abraham, in which by the contemplation of all that is around him, he ultimately arrives at the conclusion of the unity of God. But since this process is accomplished by an arrangement of the divine emanations under the name of the ten Sephiroths, and in the permutation of numerals and of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, it would certainly convey no such idea, nor probably indeed any idea at all, to the mind uninitiated into Kabbalistic systems. The Yetzirah is in fact admittedly a work of extraordinary obscurity and almost certainly of extreme antiquity. Monsieur Paul Vulliod and his exhaustive work on the Kabbalah, recently published, says that its date has been placed as early as the 6th century before Christ, and as late as the 10th century AD. But that it at any rate is older than the Talmud is shown by the fact that in the Talmud the rabbis are described as studying it for magical purposes. The Sefer yetzra is also said to be the work referred to in the Quran under the name of the Book of Abraham. The immense compilation known as the Sefer Ha-Zohar, or Book of Light, is, however, of greater importance to the study of Kabbalistic philosophy. According to the Zohar itself, the mysteries of wisdom were imparted to Adam by God, whilst he was still in the Garden of Eden, in the form of a book delivered by the angel Razael. From Adam, the book passed on to Seth, then to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, and later to Moses, one of its principal exponents. Other Jewish writers declare, however, that Moses received it for the first time on Mount Sinai and communicated it to the 70 elders, by whom it was handed down to David and Solomon, then to Ezra and Nehemiah, and finally to the rabbis of the early Christian era. Until this date, the Zohar had remained a purely oral tradition, but now for the first time it is said to have been written down by the disciples of Simon ben Yochai, The Talmud relates that for twelve years the rabbi Simon and his son Eliezer concealed themselves in a cavern where, sitting in the sand up to their necks, they meditated on the sacred law and were frequently visited by the prophet Elias. In this way, Jewish legend adds, the great book of the Zohar was composed and committed to writing by the rabbi's son Eliezer and his secretary, the rabbi Abba. The first date at which the Zohar is definitely known to have appeared is the end of the 13th century, when it was committed to writing by a Spanish Jew, Moses de Leon, who, according to Dr. Ginsberg, said he had discovered and reproduced the original document of Simon Ben-Yoai. His wife and daughter, however, declared that he had composed it all himself, which is the truth. Jewish opinion is strongly divided on this question one body maintaining that the Zohar is the comparatively modern work of Moses de Lyon, the other declaring it to be of extreme antiquity. M. Vouliod, who has collated all these views in the course of some fifty pages, shows that although the name Zohar might have originated with Moses de Lyon, the ideas it embodied were far older than the thirteenth century. How, he asks pertinently, would it have been possible for the rabbis of the Middle Ages to have been deceived into accepting as an ancient document a work that was of completely modern origin? Obviously, the Zohar was not a composition of Moses de Lyon, but a compilation made by him from various documents dating from the very early times. Moreover, as M. Villiod goes on to explain, those who deny its antiquity are the anti-Kabbalists, headed by Gratz whose object is to prove the Kabbalah to be at variance with Orthodox Judaism. Theodore Reinach goes so far as to declare the Kabbalah to be a subtle poison which enters into the veins of Judaism and wholly infests it. Salomon Reinach calls it one of the worst aberrations of the human mind. This view many a student of the Kabbalah will hardly dispute, but to say that it is foreign to Judaism is another matter. The fact is that the main ideas of the Zohar find confirmation in the Talmud. As the Jewish Encyclopedia observes, the Kabbalah is not really in opposition to the Talmud, and many Talmudic Jews have supported and contributed to it. Adolf Frank does not hesitate to describe it as the heart and life of Judaism. The greater number of the most eminent rabbis of the 17th and 18th centuries believed firmly in the sacredness of the Zohar and the infallibility of its teaching. The question of the antiquity of the Kabbalah is therefore in reality largely a matter of names. That a mystical tradition existed amongst the Jews from remote antiquity will hardly be denied by anyone. It is therefore, as M. Vuleod observes, only a matter of knowing at what moment Jewish mysticism took the name of Kabbalah. Edersheim asserts that It is undeniable that already at the time of Jesus Christ, there existed an assemblage of doctrines and speculations that were carefully concealed from the multitude. They were not even revealed to ordinary scholars for fear of leading them towards heretical ideas. This kind bore the name of Kabbalah, and as the term of Kabbalah, to receive, transmit, indicates, it represented the spiritual traditions transmitted from the earliest ages although mingled in the course of time with impure or foreign elements. Is the Kabbalah, then, as Gouzhanot de Mousseau asserts, older than the Jewish race, a legacy handed down from the first patriarchs of the world? We must admit this hypothesis to be incapable of proof, yet. It is one that has found so much favor with students of occult traditions that it cannot be ignored. The Jewish Kabbalah itself supports it by tracing its descent from the patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Enoch, and Abraham, who lived before the Jews as a separate race, came into existence. Eliphaz Levi accepts this genealogy and relates that the Holy Kabbalah was the tradition of the children of Seth, carried out of Chaldea by Abraham, who was the inheritor of the secrets of Enoch and his father of initiation in Israel. According to this theory, which we find again propounded by the American Freemason Dr. Mackey, there was, besides the divine Kabbalah of the children of Seth, the magical Kabbalah of the children of Cain, which descended to the Sabiists or star worshippers of Chaldea, adepts in astronomy and necromancy. Sorcery, as we know, has been practiced by the Canaanites before the occupation of Palestine by the Israelites. Egypt, India, and Greece also had their soothsayers and diviners. In spite of the imprecations against sorcery contained in the Law of Moses, the Jews, disregarding these warnings, caught the contagion and mingled the sacred tradition they had inherited with magical ideas, partly borrowed from other races and partly of their own devising. At the same time, the speculative side of the Jewish Kabbalah borrowed from the philosophy of the Persian Magi. Of the Neoplatonists and of the Neopythagoreans. There is, then, some justification for the anti Kabbalist contention that what we know today as the Kabbalah is not of purely Jewish origin. Rougenot de Mousseau, who had made a profound study of occultism, asserts that there were therefore two Kabbalas: the ancient sacred tradition handed down from the first patriarchs of the human race and the evil Kabbalah wherein this sacred tradition was mingled by the rabbis with barbaric superstitions, combined with their own imagings and henceforth marked with their seal. This view also finds expression in the remarkable work of the converted Jew Drock, who refers to the ancient and true Kabbalah, which we distinguish from the modern Kabbalah, false, condemnable, and condemned by the Holy See, the work of the rabbis, who have also falsified and perverted the Talmudic tradition. The doctors of the synagogue trace it back to Moses, whilst at the same time admitting that the principal truths it contains were those known by revelation to the first patriarchs of the world. Further on, Drock quotes the statement of Sixtus of Siena, another converted Jew and a Dominican, protected by Pius V. Since by the decree of the Holy Roman Inquisition, all books appertaining to the Kabbalah have lately been condemned, one must know that the Kabbalah is double. That one is true, the other false. The true and pious one is that which elucidates the secret mysteries of the holy law according to the principle of anagogy. This Kabbalah, therefore, the church has never condemned. The false and impious Kabbalah is a certain mendacious kind of Jewish tradition, full of innumerable vanities and falsehoods, differing but little from necromancy. This kind of superstition, therefore, improperly called Kabbalah, The Church, within the last few years, has deservedly condemned. The modern Jewish Kabbalah presents a dual aspect, theoretical and practical, the former concerned with theosophical speculations, the latter with magical practices. It would be impossible here to give an idea of the Kabbalistic Theosophy with its extraordinary imaginings on the Sephiroths, the attributes and functions of good and bad angels, dissertations on the nature of demons, and minute details on the appearance of God under the name of the Ancient of Ancients, from whose head 400,000 words receive the light. The length of this face from the top of his head is 370 times 10,000 worlds. It is called the Long Face, for such is the name of the Ancient of Ancients. The description of the hair and beard alone belonging to this gigantic countenance occupies a large place in the Zoharic, Treatise, Idra, Rabbah. According to the Kabbalah, every letter in the scriptures contains a mystery, only to be solved by the initiated. By means of this system of interpretation, passages of the Old Testament are shown to bear meanings totally unapparent to the ordinary reader. Thus, the Zohar explains that Noah was lamed for life by the bite of a lion whilst he was in the ark. The adventures of Jonah inside the whale are related with an extraordinary wealth of imagination whilst the beautiful story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman is travestied in the most grotesque manner. In the practical Kabbalah, this method of decoding is reduced to a theurgic or magical system in which the healing of diseases plays an important part, and is effected by means of the mystical arrangement of numbers and letters, by the pronunciation of the ineffable name, by the use of amulets and talismans, or by compounds supposed to contain certain occult properties. All these ideas derived from very ancient cults. Even the art of working miracles by the use of the divine name, which after the appropriation of the Kabbalah by the Jews became the particular practice of Jewish miracle workers, appears to have originated in Chaldea. Nor can the insistence on the chosen people theory which forms the basis of all Talmudic and Kabbalistic writings, be regarded as a purely Jewish origin. The ancient Egyptians likewise believed themselves to be the peculiar people specially loved by the gods. But in the hands of the Jews, this belief became a pretension to the exclusive enjoyment of divine favor. According to the Zohar, all Israelites will have a part in the future world. And on arrival there will not be handed over like the Goyim, or non-Jewish races, to the hands of the angel Duma and sent down to hell. Indeed, the Goyim are even denied human attributes. Thus, the Zohar again explains that the words of the scripture, Jehovah Elohim made man, mean that he made Israel. 17th century rabbinical treatise Emek HaMelech observes, Our rabbis of blessed memory have said, Ye choose our men, because of the soul ye have from the supreme man, i.e. God. But the nations of the world are not styled men, because they have not, from the holy and supreme man, the Neshema or glorious soul, but they have the nepesh, soul, from Adam Belial. That is the malicious and unnecessary man called Samael, the supreme devil. In conformity with this exclusive attitude towards the rest of the human race, The messianic idea which forms the dominating theme of the Kabbalah is made to serve purely Jewish interests. Yet, in its origin, this idea was possibly not Jewish. It is said by believers in an ancient secret tradition common to other races besides the Jews that a part of this tradition related to a past golden age when man was free from care and evil non-existent. The subsequent fall of man and the loss of this primitive felicity and finally to a revelation received from heaven foretelling the separation of this loss and the coming of the Redeemer who should save the world and restore the Golden Age. According to Drock, the tradition of a man-god who should present himself as the teacher and liberator of the fallen human race was constantly taught amongst all the enlightened nations of the globe. Vitus e Constans opinio, As Suetonius says, it is of all times and of all places. And Drock goes on to quote the evidence of Volney, who had traveled in the East and declared that, The sacred and mythological traditions of earlier times have spread throughout all Asia, the belief in a great mediator who was to come, a future savior, king-god-conqueror, and legislator, who would bring back the golden age to earth and deliver man from the empire of evil. All that can be said with any degree of certainty with regard to this belief is that it did exist amongst the Zoroastrians of Persia, as well as amongst the Jews. The Herbelot, quoting Abu Faraj shows that 500 years before Christ, Zurdasht, the leader of the Zoroastrians, predicted the coming of the Messiah, at whose birth a star would appear. He also told his disciples that the Messiah would be born of a virgin that they would be the first to hear of him, and that they should bring him gifts. Drock believes that this tradition was taught in the ancient synagogue, thus explaining the words of St. Paul that unto the Jews were committed the oracles of God. This oral doctrine, which is the Kabbalah, had for its object the most sublime truths of the faith which it brought back incessantly to the promised Redeemer, the foundation of the whole system of the ancient tradition. Drock further asserts that the doctrine of the Trinity formed a part of this tradition. Whoever has familiarized himself with that which was taught by the ancient doctors of the synagogue, particularly those who lived before the coming of the Savior, knows that the Trinity and one God was a truth admitted amongst them from the earliest times. M. Vuliod points out that Gratz admits the existence of this idea in the Zohar, It even taught certain doctrines which appeared favourable to the Christian dogma of the Trinity. And again, it is incontestable that the Zohar makes allusions to the beliefs in the Trinity and the Incarnation. M. Vuliad adds, The idea of the Trinity must therefore play an important part in the Kabbalah, since it has been possible to infirm that the characteristic of the Zohar in its particular conception is its attachment to the principle of the Trinity. And further quotes, Edersheim as saying that, a great part of the explanation given in the writings of the Kabbalists resembles in a surprising manner the highest truths of Christianity. It would appear then that the certain remnants of the ancient secret tradition lingered on in the Kabbalah. The Jewish Encyclopedia, perhaps unintentionally, endorses this opinion, since in deriding the 16th century Christian Kabbalists for asserting that the Kabbalah contained traces of Christianity, It goes on to say that what appears to be Christian in the Kabbalah is only ancient esoteric doctrine. Here, then, we have it on the authority of modern Jewish scholars that the ancient secret tradition was in harmony with Christian teaching. But in the teaching of the later synagogue, the philosophy of the earlier sages was narrowed down to suit the exclusive system of the Jewish hierarchy. And the ancient hope of a Redeemer, who should restore man to the state of felicity, he had lost at the fall, was transformed into the idea of salvation for the Jews alone under the aegis of a triumphant and even an avenging Messiah. It is this messianic dream perpetuated in the modern Kabbalah which, 1900 years ago, the advent of Christ on earth came to disturb. The Coming of the Redeemer The fact that many Christian doctrines, such as the conception of a trinity, the miraculous birth, and murder of a deity, had found a place in earlier religions has frequently been used as an argument to show that the story of Christ was merely a new version of various ancient legends, those of Attis, Adonis, or of Osiris, and that consequently the Christian religion is founded on a myth. The answer to this is that the existence of Christ on earth is an historic fact which no serious authority has ever denied. The attempts of such writers as Drews and J.M. Robertson to establish the theory of the Christ myth, which finds an echo in the utterances of socialist orators, have been met with so much able criticism as to need no further refutation. Sir James Fraser, who will certainly not be accused of bigoted orthodoxy, observes in this connection The doubts which have been cast on the historical reality of Jesus are, in my judgment, unworthy of serious attention. To dissolve the founder of Christianity into a myth, as some would do, is hardly less absurd than it would be to do the same for Muhammad, Luther, and Calvin. May not the fact that certain circumstances in the life of Christ were foreshadowed by earlier religions indicate, as Eliphas Levi observes, that the ancients had an intuition of Christian mysteries? To those, therefore, who had adhered to the ancient tradition, Christ appeared as the fulfillment of a prophecy as old as the world. Thus the wise men came from afar to worship the babe of Bethlehem. And when they saw his star in the east, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. In Christ they hailed not only him who was born king of the Jews, but the savior of the whole human race. In the light of this great hope, that wondrous night in Bethlehem is seen in all its sublimity. Throughout the ages the seers had looked for the coming of the Redeemer, and, lo, he was here. But it was not to the mighty in Israel, to the high priests and the scribes, that his birth was announced, but to the humble shepherds watching their flocks by night. And these men of simple faith, hearing from the angels the good tidings of great joy, that a Savior, Christ the Lord, was born, went with haste to see the babe lying in the manger, and returned glorifying and praising God. So also to the devout in Israel, to Simeon and to Anna the prophetess, the great event appeared in its universal significance. And Simeon, departing in peace, knew that his eyes had seen the salvation that was to be, a light to lighten the Gentiles, as well as the glory of the people of Israel. But to the Jews, in whose hands the ancient tradition had been turned to the exclusive advantage of the Jewish race, to the rabbis, who had, moreover, constituted themselves to the sole guardians within this nation of the said tradition, the manner of its fulfillment was necessarily abhorrent. Instead of a resplendent Messiah who should be presented by them to the people, a Savior was born amongst the people themselves and brought to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord. A Savior, moreover, who, as time went on, imparted His divine message to the poor and humble, and declared that His kingdom was not of this world. This was clearly what Mary meant when she said that God had scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, that He had put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of the low degree. Christ was therefore doubly hateful to the Jewish hierarchy in that He attacked the privilege of the race to which they belonged by throwing open the door to all mankind and the privilege of the caste to which they belong by revealing sacred doctrines to the profane and destroying their claim to exclusive knowledge. Unless viewed from this aspect, neither the antagonism displayed by the scribes and Pharisees towards our Lord, nor the denunciations he uttered against them can be properly understood. Woe unto you lawyers! For ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and in them they were entering... And ye hindered. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. What did Christ mean by the key of knowledge? Clearly, the sacred tradition, which, as Drach explains, foreshadowed the doctrines of Christianity. It was the rabbis who perverted that tradition. And thus, the guilt of these perfidious doctors consisted in their concealing from the people the traditional explanation of the sacred books, by means of which they would have been able to recognize the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. Many of the people, however, did recognize him. Indeed, the multitude acclaimed him, spreading their garments before him and crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Writers who have cited the choice of Barabbas in the place of Christ as an instance of misguided popular judgment overlook the fact that this choice was not spontaneous. It was the chief priests who delivered Christ from envy and who moved the people that Pilate should rather release unto them Barabbas. Then the people obediently cried out, Crucify him! So also it was the rabbis who, after hiding from the people the meaning of the sacred tradition at the moment of its fulfillment, afterwards poisoned that same stream for future generations. Abominable calumnies of Christ and Christianity occur not only in the Kabbalah, but in the earlier editions of the Talmud. In these days, says Barclay, our Lord and Savior is that one, such a one, a fool, the leper, the deceiver of Israel, etc., Efforts are made to prove that he is the son of Joseph Pandira, before his marriage with Mary. His miracles are attributed to sorcery, the secret of which he brought in a slit in his own flesh out of Egypt. He is said to have been the first stoned and then hanged on to the eve of the Passover. His disciples are called heretics and opprobrious names. They are accused of immoral practices and the New Testament is called a sinful book. The references to these subjects manifest the most bitter aversion and hatred. One might look in vain for passages such as these in English or French translations of the Talmud for the reason that no complete translation exists in these languages. The fact is of great significance. Whilst the sacred books of every other important religion have been rendered into our own tongue and are open to everyone to study, the book that forms the foundation of modern Judaism is closed to the general public. We can read English translations of the Quran, of the Dhammapada, of the Sutta Nipata, of the Zendavesta, of the Shu King, of the Laws of Manu, of the Bhagavad Gita, but we cannot read the Talmud. In the long series of sacred books of the East, the Talmud finds no place. All that is accessible to the ordinary reader consists, on one hand, in expurgated versions or judicious selections by Jewish and pro Jewish compilers, and on the other hand, in anti Semitic publications on which it would be dangerous to place reliance. The principal English translation by Rodkinson is very incomplete, and the folios are nowhere indicated, so that it is impossible to look up a passage. The French translation by Jean de Pauli. Professes to present the entire text of the Venetian Talmud of 1520, but it does nothing of the kind. The translator in the preface, in fact, admits that he has left out sterile discussions and has throughout attempted to tone down the brutality of certain expressions which offend our ears. This, of course, affords him infinite latitude, so that all passages likely to prove displeasing to the Hebraisants, to whom his work is particularly dedicated, Are discreetly expunged. Jean de Pauli's translation of the Kabbalah appears, however, to be complete, but a fair and honest rendering of the whole Talmud into English or French still remains to be made. Moreover, even the Hebrew scholar is obliged to exercise some discrimination if he desires to consult the Talmud in its original form. For by the 16th century, when the study of Hebrew became general amongst Christians, the anti social and anti Christian tendencies of the Talmud attracted the attention of the censor, and in the Baal Talmud of 1581, the most obnoxious passages in the entire treatise, Abodazara, Zara, were suppressed. In the Krakow edition of 1604 that followed, these passages were restored by the Jews, a proceeding which aroused so much indignation amongst Christian students of Hebrew that the Jews became alarmed. Accordingly, a Jewish synod, assembled in Poland in 1631, ordered the offending passages to be expunged again, but, according to Drach, to be replaced by circles which the rabbis were to fill in orally when giving instruction to young Jews. After that date, the Talmud was for a time carefully boulderized, so that in order to discover its original form, it is advisable to go back to the Venetian Talmud of 1520, before any omissions were made, or to consult a modern edition, for now that the Jews no longer fear the Christians, these passages are all said to have been replaced, and no attempt is made, as in the Middle Ages, to prove that they do not refer to the founder of Christianity. Thus, the Jewish Encyclopedia admits that Jewish legends concerning Jesus are found in the Talmud and Midrash, and in the life of Jesus, Poldot Yeshu, that originated in the Middle Ages. It is the tendency of all these sources to belittle the person of Jesus by ascribing to him a legitimate birth, magic, and a shameful death. The last work mentioned, the Toldot Yeshu, or the Sefer Toldos, Yeshu, described here as originating in the Middle Ages, probably belongs in reality to a much earlier period. Eliphaz Levi asserts that the Sefer Toldos, to which the Jews attribute a great antiquity and which they hid from the Christians with such precautions that this book was for a long while unfindable, is quoted for the first time by Raymond Martin of the Order of the Preaching Brothers towards the end of the 13th century. This book was evidently written by a rabbi initiated into the mysteries of the Kabbalah. Whether then the Toldat Yeshu had existed for many centuries before it was first brought to light, or whether it was a collection of Jewish traditions woven into a coherent narrative by a 13th century rabbi, the ideas it contained can be traced back at least as far as the 2nd century of the Christian era. Origen, who in the middle of the 3rd century wrote his reply to the attack of Celsus on Christianity, refers to a scandalous story closely resembling the Toldat Yeshu which Celsus, who lived towards the end of the 2nd century, had quoted on the authority of a Jew. It is evident, therefore, that the legend it contains had long been current in Jewish circles, but the book itself did not come into the hands of Christians until it was translated into Latin by Raymond Martin. Later on, Luther summarized it in German under the name of Schemhampirach. Wagenseel in 1681 and Huldrich in 1705 published Latin translations. It is also to be found in French in Gustave's Brunei's Evangelies Apocryphes. However repugnant it is to transcribe any portion of this blasphemous work, its main outline must be given here in order to trace the subsequent course of the anti-Christian secret tradition, in which, as we shall see, it has been perpetuated up into our day. Briefly, then, the Toldot Yeshu relates with the most indecent details that Miriam, a hairdresser of Bethlehem, affianced to a young man named Yochanan, was seduced by a libertine, Joseph Panther of Pindara, and gave birth to a son whom she named Joshua or Jeshu. According to the Talmudic authors of the Sota and the Sahedrim, Jeshu was taken during his boyhood to Egypt where he was initiated into the secret doctrines of the priests, and on his return to Palestine gave himself up to the practice of magic. The Toldat Yeshu, however, goes on to say that, on reaching manhood, Yeshu learned the secret of his illegitimacy, on account of which he was driven out of the synagogue and took refuge for a time in Galilee. Now there was in the temple a stone on which was engraved the tetragrammaton, or Shem Hamparosh, that is to say, the ineffable name of God. This stone had been found by King David when the foundations of the temple were being prepared and was deposited by him in the Holy of Holies. Jeshu, knowing this, came from Galilee and, penetrating into the Holy of Holies, read the ineffable name, which he transcribed onto a piece of parchment and concealed in an incision under his skin. By this means he was able to work miracles and to persuade the people that he was the Son of God foretold by Isaiah. With the aid of Judas, the sages of the synagogue succeeded in capturing Jeshu, who was then led before the great and little Sahedrim by whom he was condemned to be stoned to death and finally hanged. Such is the story of Christ according to the Jewish Kabbalists, which should be compared not only with the Christian tradition but with that of the Muslims. It is perhaps not sufficiently known that the Qur'an, whilst denying the divinity of Christ and also the fact of His crucifixion, nevertheless indignantly denounces the infamous legends concerning Him perpetuated by the Jews, and confirms in beautiful language the story of the Annunciation and the doctrine of the miraculous conception. Remember when the angels said, O Mary, Verily hath God chosen thee and purified thee, and chosen thee above the women of the worlds. Remember when the angel said, O Mary, verily God announceth to thee the word from him. His name shall be Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, illustrious in this world and in the next, and one of those who have near access to God. The mother of Jesus is shown to have been pure and to have kept her maidenhood. It was the Jews who spoke against Mary, a grievous calumny. Jesus himself is described as strengthened with the Holy Spirit and the Jews are reproached for rejecting the Apostle of God, to whom was given the Evangel with its guidance and light, confirmatory of the preceding law. Thus, during the centuries that saw the birth of Christianity, although the other non-Christian forces arrayed themselves against the new faith, it was left to the Jews to inaugurate a campaign of vilification against the person of its founder, when Muslims to this day revere as one of the great teachers of the world. The Essenes. A subtler device for discrediting Christianity and undermining belief in the divine character of our Lord has been adopted by modern writers, principally Jewish, who set out to prove that he belonged to the sect of the Essenes, a community of ascetics holding all goods in common, which had existed in Palestine before the birth of Christ. Thus, the Jewish historian Gretz declares that Jesus simply appropriated to himself the essential features of Essenism, and that primitive Christianity was nothing but an offshoot of Essenism. The Christian Jew, Dr. Ginsberg, partially endorses this view in a small pamphlet containing most of the evidence that has been brought forward on the subject, and himself expresses the opinion that it will hardly be doubted that our Savior himself belonged to this holy brotherhood. So, after representing Christ as a magician in the Toldat Yeshu and the Talmud, Jewish tradition seeks to explain his miraculous works as those of a mere healer, an idea that we shall find descending right through the secret societies to this day. Of course, if this were true, if the miracles of Christ were simply due to a knowledge of natural laws and his doctrines were the outcome of a sect, the whole theory of his divine power and mission falls to the ground. This is why it is essential to expose the fallacies and even the bad faith on which the attempt to identify him with the Essenes is based. Now, we have only to study the Gospels carefully in order to realize that the teachings of Christ were totally different from those peculiar to the Essenes. Christ did not live in a fraternity, but as Dr. Ginsburg himself points out, associated with publicans and sinners. The Essenes disapproved of wine and marriage, whilst Christ sanctioned marriage by his presence at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, and there turned water into wine. A further point, the most conclusive of all, Dr. Ginsberg ignores, namely, that one of the principal traits of the Essenes, which distinguished them from the other Jewish sects of their day, was their disapproval of ointment, which they regarded as defiling. Whilst Christ not only commended the woman who brought the precious jar of ointment, but reproached Simon for the omission. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. It is obvious that if Christ had been in a scene, but had departed from his usual custom on this occasion, out of deference to the woman's feelings, he would have understood why Simon had not offered him the same attention, and at any rate Simon would have excused himself on these grounds. Further, if his disciples had been Essenes, Would they not have protested against this violation of their principles, instead of merely objecting that the ointment was of too costly a kind? But it is in attributing to Christ the communistic doctrines of the Essenes that Dr. Ginsburg's conclusions are the most misleading, a point of particular importance in view of the fact that it is on this false hypothesis that so-called Christian socialism has been built up. The Essenes, he writes, had all things in common, and appointed one of the brethren as steward to manage the common bag. So the primitive Christians. It is perfectly true that, as the first reference to the Acts testifies, some of the primitive Christians after death of Christ formed themselves into a body having all things in common. But there is not the slightest evidence that Christ and his disciples followed this principle. The solitary passages in the Gospel of St. John which are all that Dr. Ginsburg can quote in support of this contention, may have referred to an alms bag or a fund for certain expenses, not to a common pool of all monetary wealth. Still less is there any evidence that Christ advocated communism to the world in general. When the young man, having great possessions, asked what he should do to inherit eternal life, Christ told him to follow the commandments, but on the young man asking what more he could do answered, If thou wilt be perfect, and go sell that thou hast, and give to the poor. Renunciation, but not the pooling of all wealth, was thus a counsel of perfection for the few who desired to devote their lives to God, as monks and nuns have always done, and bore no relation to the communistic system of the Essenes. Dr. Ginsburg goes on to say, Essenism put all its members on the same level, forbidding the exercise of authority, of one over the other and enjoining mutual service, so Christ. Essenism commanded its disciples to call no man master upon the earth, so Christ. As a matter of fact, Christ strongly upheld the exercise of authority, not only in the oft quoted passage, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but in his approval of the centurion's speech, I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go and he goeth, and to another, Come and he cometh and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. Everywhere Christ commends the faithful servant and enjoins obedience to masters. If we look up the reference to the Gospel of St. Matthew, where Dr. Ginsberg says that Christ commanded his disciples to call no man master on earth, we shall find that he has not only perverted the sense of the passage, but reversed the orders of the words, which, following on a denunciation of the Jewish rabbis, runs thus. But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Neither be called ye masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The apostles were therefore never ordered to call no man master, but not to be called master themselves. Moreover, if we refer to the Greek text, we shall see that this was meant in a spiritual and not a social sense. The word for master here, given as in the first verse, i.e. teaching in the second, literally guide, and the word is servant. When masters and servants, in the social sense, are referred to in the Gospels, the word employed for master and for servant. Dr. Ginsburg should have been aware of this distinction, and that the passage in question has therefore no bearing on his argument. As a matter of fact, it would appear that some of the apostles kept servants, since Christ commends them for exacting strict attention to duty. Which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, Go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded to him, I throw not? This passage would alone suffice to show that Christ and his apostles did not inhabit communities where all were equal, but followed the usual practices of the social system under which they lived, though adopting certain rules, such as taking only one garment and carrying no money when they went on journeys. Those resemblances between the teachings of the Essenes and the Sermon on the Mount, which Dr. Ginsberg indicates, refer not to the customs of a sect, but to general precepts for human conduct, humility, meekness, charity, and so forth. At the same time, it is clear that if the Essenes in general conformed to some of the principles laid down by Christ, certain of their doctrines were completely at variance with those of Christ and of primitive Christians, in particular their custom of praying to the rising sun and their disbelief in the resurrection of the body. St. Paul denounces asceticism, the cardinal doctrine of the Essenes, in unmeasured terms, warning the brethren that, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to the seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them, which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. This would suggest that certain Essenian ideas had crept into Christian communities and were regarded by those who remembered Christ's true teaching as a dangerous perversion. The Essenes were therefore not Christians but a secret society, practicing four degrees of initiation and bound by terrible oaths not to divulge the sacred mysteries confided to them. And what were those mysteries but those of the Jewish secret tradition, which we now know as the Kabbalah? Dr. Ginsburg throws an important light on Essenism when, in the passage alone, he refers to the obligation of the Essenes not to divulge the secret doctrines to anyone, carefully to preserve the books belonging to their sect and the names of the angels or the mysteries connected with the Tetragrammaton and the other names of God and the angels comprised in the Theosophy as well as the Cosmogony, which also played so important a part among the Jewish mystics and the Kabbalists. The truth is, clearly, that the Essenes were Kabbalists, though doubtless Kabbalists of a superior kind. The Kabbal they possessed very possibly descended from pre-Christian times and had remained uncontaminated by the anti-Christian strain introduced into it by the rabbis after the death of Christ. The Essenes are of importance to the subject of this book, as the first of the secret societies from which a direct line of tradition can be traced up to the present day. But if in this peaceful community no actually anti-Christian influence is to be discerned, the same cannot be said of the succeeding pseudo-Christian sects which, whilst professing Christianity, mingled with Christian doctrines the poison of the perverted Kabbalah, main source of the errors which henceforth rent the Christian Church in Twain. The Gnostics. The first school of thought to create a schism in Christianity was the collection of sects known under the generic name of Gnosticism. In its purer forms, Gnosticism aimed at supplementing faith by knowledge of eternal verities and at giving a wider meaning to Christianity by linking it up with earlier faiths. The belief that the divinity had been manifested in the religious institutions of all nations thus led to the conception of a sort of universal religion containing the divine elements of all. Gnosticism, however, as the Jewish Encyclopedia points out, was Jewish in character long before it became Christian. M. Matter indicates Syria and Palestine as its cradle and Alexandria as the center by which it was influenced at the time of its alliance with Christianity. This influence, again, was predominantly Jewish. Philo and Aristobulus, the leading Jewish philosophers of Alexandria, wholly attached to this ancient religion of their fathers, both resolved to adorn it with the spoils of other systems and to open to Judaism the way to immense conquests. This method of borrowing from other races and religions, those ideas useful for their purpose, has always been the custom of the Jews. The Kabbalah, as we have seen, was made up of these heterogeneous elements. And it is here that we find the principal progenitor of Gnosticism. The Freemason Ragon gives the clue in the words, The Kabbalah is the key of the occult sciences. The Gnostics were born of the Kabbalists. For the Kabbalah was much older than the Gnostics. Modern historians who date it merely from the publication of the Zohar by Moses de Lyon in the 13th century, or from the school of Luria in the 16th century, obscure this most important fact, which Jewish savants have always clearly recognized. The Jewish Encyclopedia, whilst denying the certainty of the connection between Gnosticism and the Kabbalah, nevertheless admits that the investigations of the anti-Kabbalist greats must be resumed on a new basis, and it goes on to show that It was Alexandria of the first century or earlier with her strange commingling of Egyptian, Chaldean, Judean, and Greek culture which furnished soil and seeds for that mystic philosophy. But since Alexandria was at the same period the home of Gnosticism, which was formed from the same elements enumerated here, the connection between the two systems is clearly evident. And matter is therefore right in saying that Gnosticism was not a defection from Christianity, but a combination of systems into which a few Christian elements were introduced. The result of Gnosticism was thus not to Christianize the Kabbalah, but to Kabbalize Christianity by mingling its pure and simple teaching with Theosophy and even magic. The Jewish Encyclopedia quotes the opinion that the central doctrine of Gnosticism, a movement closely connected with Jewish mysticism, was nothing else than the attempt to liberate the soul and unite it with God. But as this was apparently to be effected through the employment of mysteries, incantations, names of angels, etc., it will be seen how widely even this phase of Gnosticism differs from Christianity and identifies itself with the magical Kabbalah of the Jews. Indeed, the man generally recognized as the founder of Gnosticism, a Jew commonly known as Simon Magus, was not only a Kabbalist mystic, but avowedly a magician, who, with a band of Jews, included his master Docithius and his disciple Menander and Cerinthus, instituted a priesthood of the mysteries and practiced occult arts and exorcisms. It was this Simon of whom we read in the Acts of the Apostles that he bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God, and who sought to purchase the power of the laying on of hands with money. Simon, indeed, crazed by his incantations and ecstasies, developed megalomania in acute form, arrogating to himself divine honors and aspiring to the adoration of the whole world. According to a contemporary legend, he eventually became sorcerer to Nero and ended his life in Rome. The prevalence of sorcery amongst the Jews during the first century of the Christian era is shown by other passages in the Acts of the Apostles. In Paphos, the false prophet, a Jew whose surname was Bar-Jesus, otherwise known as Elimas, the sorcerer, opposed the teaching of St. Paul and brought on himself the imprecation, O full of all the subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness! wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Perversion is the keynote of all the debased forms of Gnosticism. According to Eliphas Levi, certain of the Gnostics introduced into their rites that profanation of Christian mysteries, which was to form the basis of black magic in the Middle Ages. The glorification of evil, which plays so important a part in the modern revolutionary movement, constituted the creeds of the Ophites, who worshipped the serpent because he had revolted against Jehovah, to whom they referred under the Kabbalistic term of the Demiurgis. And still more of the Canites, so-called from their cult of Cain, whom with Daphim and Abiram, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, and finally Judas Iscariot, they regarded as noble victims of the Demiurgis. Animated by hatred of all social and moral order, the Cainites called upon the men to destroy the works of God and to commit every kind of infamy. These men were therefore not only the enemies of Christianity but of Orthodox Judaism, since it was against the Jehovah of the Jews that their hatred was particularly directed. Another Gnostic sect, the Carpocratians, followers of Carpocrates of Alexandria and his son Epiphanus who died from his debaucheries and was venerated as a god, likewise regarded all written laws, Christian or Mosaic, with contempt and recognized only the knowledge given to the great men of every nation, Plato and Pythagoras, Moses and Christ, which frees one from all the vulgar call religion and makes man equal to God. So in the corporations of the second century, We find already the tendency towards the deification of humanity, which forms the supreme doctrine of the secret societies of the visionary socialists of our day. The war now begins between the two contending principles the Christian conception of man reaching up to God and the secret society conception of man as God, needing no revelation from on high and no guidance but the law of his own nature. And since that nature is in itself divine, all that springs from it is praiseworthy, and those acts usually regarded as sins are not to be condemned. By this line of reasoning, the Carpocratians arrived at much the same conclusions as modern communists with regard to the ideal social system. Thus, Epiphanes held that since nature herself reveals the principle of the community and the unity of all things, human laws which are contrary to this law of nature are so many culpable infractions of the legitimate order of things. Before these laws were imposed on humanity, everything was in common—land, goods, and women. According to certain contemporaries, the Carpocrations returned to this primitive system by instituting the community of women and indulging in every kind of licence. The further Gnostic sect of Antitax— following the same cult of human nature, taught revolt against all positive religion and laws and the necessity for gratifying the flesh. The Adamites of North Africa, going a step further in the return to nature, cast off all clothing at their religious services so as to represent the primitive innocence of the Garden of Eden. A precedent follows by the Adamites of Germany in the 15th century. These Gnostics, says Eliphas Levi, under the pretext of spiritualizing matter, materialize the spirit in the most revolting ways. Rebels to the hierarchic order, they wish to substitute the mystical license of sensual passions to wise Christian sobriety and obedience to laws. Enemies of the family, they wish to produce sterility by increasing debauchery. By way of systematically perverting the doctrines of the Christian faith, the Gnostics claim to possess the true versions of the Gospels and profess belief in these to the exclusion of all others. Thus, the Ebionites had their own corrupted version of the Gospel of St. Matthew, founded upon the Gospel of the Hebrews, known earlier to the Jewish Christians. The Marcosians had their version of St. Luke, the Canites their own Gospel of Judas, and the Valentinians their Gospel of St. John. As we shall see later, the Gospel of St. John is the one that, throughout the war on Christianity, has been especially chosen for the purpose of perversion. Of course, this spirit of perversion was nothing new. Many centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah had denounced it in the words, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. But the role of the Gnostics was to reduce perversion to a system by binding men together into sects, working under the guise of enlightenment, in order to obscure all recognized ideas of morality and religion. It is this which constitutes their importance in the history of secret societies. Whether the Gnostics themselves can be described as a secret society, or rather as a ramification of secret societies, is open to question. M. Matter, quoting a number of the 3rd century writers, shows the possibility that they had mysteries and initiations. The Church Fathers definitely asserted this to be the case. According to Tertullian, the Valentinians continued, or rather perverted, the mysteries of Eleusis, out of which they made a sanctuary of prostitution. The Valentinians are known to have divided their members into three classes, the pneumatics, the psychics, and the hylix i.e. materialists. The Basilidians also said to have possessed secret doctrines known to hardly one in a thousand of the sect. From all this, M. Matter concludes that 1. The Gnostics professed to hold by means of tradition a secret doctrine superior to that contained in the public writings of the apostles. 2. That they did not communicate this doctrine to everyone. 3. That they communicated it by means of emblems and symbols, as the diagram of the Ophites proves for that in these communications they imitated the rites and trials of the mysteries of Eleusis. This claim to the possession of a secret oral tradition, whether known under the name of Kabbalah, confirms the conception of the Gnostics as Kabbalists and shows how far they had departed from Christian teaching. For if only in this idea of one doctrine for the ignorant and another for the initiated, the Gnostics had restored the very system which Christianity had come to destroy. Manichaeism Whilst we have seen the Gnostic sects working for more or less subversive purposes under the guise of esoteric doctrines, we find in the Manichaeans of Persia, who followed a century later, a sect embodying the same tendencies and approaching still nearer to secret society organization. Cupercus, or Cupercius, the founder of Manichaeism, was born in Babylonia about the year A.D. 216. Whilst still a child, he is said to have been bought as a slave by a rich widow of Ctesiphon, who liberated him and on her death left him great wealth. According to another story, for the whole history of Manes rests on legends, he inherited from a rich old woman the books of a Saracen named Scythianus on the wisdom of the Egyptians, combining the doctrines these books contained with ideas borrowed from Zoroastrianism, Gnosticism, and Christianity. And also with certain additions of his own, he elaborated a philosophic system which he proceeded to teach. Kubrickus then changed his name to Mani or Manes and proclaimed himself the Paraclete promised by Jesus Christ. His followers were divided into two classes the outer circle of hearers or combatants and the inner circle of teachers or aesthetics, described as the elect. As evidence of their resemblance with Freemasons, it was said that the Manichaeans made use of secret signs and grips and passwords, that owing to the circumstance of their master's adoption they called Manes the son of the widow, and themselves the children of the widow. But this is not clearly proved. One of their custom is, however, interesting in this connection. According to legend, Manes undertook to cure the son of the king of Persia, who had fallen ill. But the prince died. Whereupon Manes was flayed alive by order of the king, and his corpse hanged up at the city gate. Every year after this, on Good Friday, the Manicheans carried out a mourning ceremony known as the bema around the catafalque of Manes, whose real sufferings they were wont to contrast with the unreal sufferings of Christ. The fundamental doctrine of Manichaeism is dualism, that is to say, the existence of two opposing principles in the world light and darkness, good and evil, founded, however, not on the Christian conception of this idea, but on the Zoroastrian conception of Ormazd and Ahriman, and so perverted and mingled with Kabbalistic superstitions that it met with as vehement, denunciation by Persian priests as by Christian fathers. Thus, according to the doctrine of Manes, all matter is absolutely evil, the principle of evil is eternal, humanity itself is of satanic origin. And the first human beings, Adam and Eve, are represented as the offspring of devils. Much the same idea may be found in the Jewish Kabbalah, where it is said that Adam, after other abominable practices, cohabited with female devils, whilst Eve consoled herself with male devils, so that whole races of demons were born into the world. Eve is also accused of cohabiting with the serpent. In the Yalkut Shimoni. It is also related that during the 130 years that Adam lived apart from Eve, he begat a generation of devils, spirits, and hobgoblins. Manichaean demonology thus paved the way for the placation of the powers of darkness practiced by the Eukites at the end of the 4th century, and later by the Paulicians and Bogomils and the Luciferians. So it is in Gnosticism and Manichaeism that we find evidence of the first attempts to pervert Christianity. The very fact that all such have been condemned by the Church as heresies has tended to enlist sympathy in their favor, yet even Eliphas Levi recognizes that here the action of the Church was right, for the monstrous Gnosis of Manes was a desecration not only for Christian doctrines but of pre-Christian sacred traditions. Chapter 2. The Revolt Against Islam we have followed the efforts of subversive sects hitherto directed against Christianity and Orthodox Judaism. We shall now see this attempt reduced by gradual stages to a working system of extraordinary efficiency, organized for the purpose of undermining all moral and religious beliefs in the minds of Muslims. In the middle of the seventh century, an immense schism was created in Islam by the rival advocates of the successors to the Prophet, the Orthodox Islamites, known by the name of Sunnis adhering to the elected caliphs Abu Bakr, Omar, and Othman. Whilst the party of revolt, known as the Shias, claimed the caliphate for the descendants of Muhammad through Ali, son of Abu Talib, and husband of Fatima, the Prophet's daughter. This division ended in open warfare. Ali was finally assassinated. His elder son, Hassan, was poisoned in Medina. His younger son Hussein fell at the Battle of Karbala, fighting against the supporters of Othman. The deaths of Hassan and Hussein are still mourned yearly by the Shias at the Muharram. The Ismailis The Shias themselves split again over the question of Ali's successors into four factions, the fourth of which divided again into two further sects. Both of these retained their allegiance to the descendants of Ali as far as Jafar as Sadiq, but whilst one party, known as the Imamas or Isna Ashariyas, i.e. the Twelvers, supported the succession through his younger son Musa to the twelfth Imam, Muhammad, son of Askiri, the Ismailis or Seveners, adhered to Ismail, the elder son of Jafar as Sadiq. So far, however, in spite of divisions, no body of Shias have ever deviated from the fundamental doctrines of Islamism, but merely claimed that these had been handed down through a different line from that recognized by the Sunnis. The earliest Ismailis, who formed themselves into a party at about the time of the death of Muhammad, son of Ismail, i.e. circa AD 770, still remained believers, declaring only that the true teaching of the Prophet had descended to Muhammad who was not dead but would return in the fullness of time, and that he was the Mahdi, whom Muslims must wait. But in about AD 873, an intriguer of extraordinary subtlety succeeded in capturing the movement, which, hitherto merely schismatic, now became definitely subversive, not only of Islamism, but of all religious belief. This man, Abdullah ibn Maimun, the son of a learned and free-thinking doctor in southern Persia, brought up in the doctrines of Gnostic dualism and profoundly versed in all religions, was in reality, like his father, a pure materialist. By professing adherence to the creed of Orthodox Shiism and proclaiming a knowledge of the mystic doctrines which the Ismailis believed to have descended through Ismail to his son Muhammad, Abdullah succeeded in placing himself at the head of the Ismailis. His advocacy of Ismail was thus merely a mask, his real aim being materialism, which he now proceeded to make into a system by founding a sect known as the Batinis, with seven degrees of initiation. Dozi has given the following description of this amazing project. To link together into one body the vanquished and the conquerors, to unite in the form of a vast secret society with many degrees of initiation freethinkers, who regarded religion only as a garb for the people, and bigots of all sects, to make tools of believers in order to give power to skeptics, to induce conquerors to overturn the empires they had founded, to build up a party, numerous, compact, and disciplined, which in due time would give the throne, if not to himself, at least to his descendants, such was Abdullah ibn Maimun's general aim, an extraordinary conception which he worked out with marvelous tact incomparable skill and a profound knowledge of the human heart. The means which he adopted were devised with diabolical cunning. It was not among the Shiites that he sought his true supporters, but among the Gebers, the Manichaeans, the pagans of Haran, and the students of Greek philosophy. On the last alone could he rely. To them alone could he gradually unfold the final mystery and revealed that imams, religions, and morality were nothing but an imposture and an absurdity. The rest of mankind, the asses, as Abdullah called them, were incapable of understanding such doctrines. But to gain his end, he by no means disdained their aid. On the contrary, he solicited it. But he took care to initiate devout and lowly souls only in the first grades of the sect. His missionaries, who were inculcated with the idea that their first duty was to conceal their true sentiments and adapt themselves to the views of their auditors, appeared in many guises and spoke, as it were, in a different language to each class. They won over the ignorant vulgar by feats of legermain, which passed for miracles, or excited their curiosity by enigmatical discourse. In the presence of the devout, they assumed the mask of virtue and piety. With mystics, they were mystical, and unfolded the inner meanings of phenomena, or explained allegories in the figurative sense of the allegories themselves. By means such as these, the extraordinary result was brought about that a multitude of men of diverse beliefs were all working together for an object known only to a few of them. I quote this passage at length because it is of immense importance in throwing a light on the organization of modern secret societies. It does not matter what the end may be, whether political, social, or religious, the system remains the same, the setting in motion of a vast number of people and making them work in a cause unknown to them. That this was the method adopted by Weishaupt in organizing the Illuminati, and that it came to him from the East will be shown later on. We shall now see how the system of the philosopher Abdullah paved the way for bloodshed by the most terrible sect the world has ever seen. The Karmathites, the first open acts of violence resulting from the doctrines of Abdullah were carried out by the Karmathites, a new development of the Ismailis. Amongst the many days sent out by the leader, which included his son Ahmad and Ahmad's son, was the day Hosen, Awazi, Abdullah's envoy to Iraq and Persia who initiated a certain Hamdan, surnamed Karmath, into the secrets of the sect. Karmath, who was born an intriguer and believer in nothing, became the leader of the Karmathites in Arabia, where a number of Arabs were soon enlisted in the society. With extraordinary skill, he succeeded in persuading these dupes to make over all their money to him first by means of small contributions, later by larger sums, until at last he convinced them of the advantages of abolishing all private property and establishing the system of the community of goods and wives. This principle was enforced by the passage of the Quran. Remember the grace of God in that whilst you are enemies, he has united your hearts, so that by his grace you have become brothers. The Sasi Thus transcribes the methods employed as given by the historian, Nowari. When Karmath had succeeded in establishing all this, and everyone had agreed to conform to it, he ordered the days to assemble all the women on a certain night, so that they should mingle promiscuously with all the men. This, he said, was perfection in the last degree of friendship and fraternal union. Often a husband led his wife and presented her himself to one of his brothers, when they gave him pleasure. When he, Carmath saw that he had become absolute master of their minds, he assured himself of their obedience, and found out the degree of their intelligence and discernment. He began to lead them quite astray. He put before them arguments borrowed from the doctrines of the dualists. They fell in easily with all that he proposed, and he took away from them all religion and released them from all those duties of piety, devotion, and the fear of God that he prescribed for them in the beginning. He permitted them pillage, and every sort of immoral license, and taught them to throw off the yoke of prayer, fasting, and other precepts. He taught them that they were held by no obligations, and that they could pillage the goods and shed the blood of their adversaries with impunity, that the knowledge of the Master of Truth, to whom they had called them, took the place of everything else, and that with this knowledge they need no longer fear sin or punishment. As the result of these teachings, the Carmathites rapidly became a band of brigands, pillaging and massacring all those who opposed them, and spreading terror throughout all the surrounding districts. Peaceful fraternity was thus turned into a wild lust for conquest. The Carmathites succeeded in dominating a great part of Arabia and the mouth of the Euphrates, and in AD 1920 extended their ravages westwards. They took possession of the holy city of Mecca in the defence of which 30,000 muslims fell for a whole century says von hammer the pernicious doctrines of carmath raged with fire and sword in the very bosom of islamism until the widespread conflagration was extinguished in blood but in proclaiming themselves revolutionaries the carmathites had departed from the plan laid down by the originator of their creed abdullah ibn maymun which had consisted not in acts of open violence but in a secret doctrine which should lead to the gradual undermining of all religious faith and the condition of mental anarchy rather than of material chaos. For violence, as always, had produced counter-violence, and it was thus that while the Karmathites were rushing to their own destruction to a series of bloody conflicts, another branch of the Ismailis were quietly reorganizing their forces more in conformity with the original method of their founder. These were the Fatimites, so-called, from their professed belief that the doctrine of the Prophet had descended from Ali, husband of Fatima, Muhammad's daughter. Whilst less extreme than the Karmathites, or than their predecessor Abdullah ibn Maimun, the Fatimites, according to the historian Makrizi, adopted the method of instilling doubts in the minds of believers and aimed at the substitution of a natural for revealed religion. Indeed, after the establishment of their power in Egypt, it is difficult to distinguish any appreciable degree of difference in the character of their teaching from the anarchic code of Abdullah and his more violent exponent Karmath. The Fatimites The founder of the Fatimite dynasty of the Caliphs was one Ubidallah known as the Mahdi, accused of Jewish ancestry by his adversaries, the Abbasidis, who declared, apparently without truth, that he was the son or grandson of Ahmed, son of Abdullah ibn Maimun, by a Jewess. Under the fourth Fatimid, Khalifa Egypt fell into the power of the dynasty, and before long bi-weekly assemblages of both men and women, known as Societies of Wisdom, were instituted in Cairo. In 1004, these acquired a greater importance by the establishment of the Dar-ul-Hikmat, or the House of Knowledge, by the 6th Khalifa Hakim, who was raised to a deity after his death and is worshipped to this day by the Druzes, Under the direction of the Dar-ul-Hikmat, or Grand Lodge of Cairo, the Fatimites continued the plan of Abdullah ibn Maimun's secret society, with the addition of two more degrees, making nine in all. Their method of enlisting proselytes and system of initiation, which, as Claudio Janet points out, are absolutely those which Weishaupt, the founder of the Illuminati, prescribed to the insinuating brothers, were transcribed by the 14th century historian Nowari in a description that may be briefly summarized thus. The proselytes were broadly divided into two classes, the learned and the ignorant. The Dai were to agree with the former, applauding his wisdom, and to impress the latter with his own knowledge by asking him perplexing questions on the Quran. Thus, in initiating him into the first degree, the Dai assumed an air of profundity and explained that religious doctrines were too obtruse for the ordinary mind, but must be interpreted by men who, like the Deus, had a special knowledge of the science. The initiate was bound to absolute secrecy concerning the truths to be revealed to him, and obliged to pay in advance for these revelations. In order to pique his curiosity, the die would suddenly stop short in the middle of the discourse, and should the novice finally decline to pay the required sum, he was left in a state of bewilderment which inspired him with the desire to know more. In the second degree, the initiate was persuaded that all his former teachers were wrong and that he must place his confidence solely in those imams, endowed with the authority from God. In the third, he learnt that the imams were those of the Ismailis, seven in number ending with Muhammad, son of Ismail, in contradistinction to the twelve imams of the imamis, who supported the claims of Ismail's brother Musa. In the fourth, he was told that the prophets preceded the Imams descending from Ali were also seven in number, namely Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, the first Muhammad, and finally Muhammad's son of Ismail. So far then, nothing was said to the initiate in contradiction to the broad tenets of Orthodox Islamism. But with the fifth degree, the process of undermining his religion began. He was now told to reject tradition and to disregard the precepts of Muhammad. In the sixth, he was taught that all religious observances, prayer, fasting, etc., were only emblematic, that in fact all these things were devices to keep the common herd of men in subordination. In the seventh, the doctrines of dualism, of a greater and lesser deity, were introduced and the unity of God, fundamental doctrine of Islamism, was destroyed. In the eighth, a great vagueness was expressed on the attributes of the first and greatest of these deities. And it was pointed out that real prophets were those who concerned themselves with practical matters, political institutions, and good forms of government. Finally, in the ninth, the adept was shown that all religious teaching was allegorical, and that religious precepts need only to be observed in so far as it is necessary to maintain order. But the man who understands the truth may disregard all such doctrines. Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and all the other prophets were therefore only teachers who had profited by the lessons of philosophy. All belief in revealed religion was thus destroyed. It will be seen then that in the last degrees the whole teaching of the first five was reversed and therefore shown to be a fraud. Fraud, in fact, constituted the system of the society. In the instructions to the days, every artifice is described for enlisting proselytes by misrepresentation. Jews were to be won by speaking ill of Christians, Christians by speaking ill of Jews and Muslims alike, Sunnis by referring with respect to the Orthodox caliphs Abu Bakr and Omar, and criticizing Ali and his descendants. Above all, care was to be taken not to put before proselytes, doctrine that might revolt them, but to make them advance step by step. By these means, they would be ready to obey any commands. As the instructions express it, if you were to give the order to whoever it might be to take from him all that he holds most precious, above all his money, he would oppose none of your orders, and if death surprised him, he would leave you to all that he possesses in his will, and make you his heir. You will think that in the whole world he cannot find a man more worthy than you. Such was the great secret society which was to form the model for the Illuminati of the eighteenth century to whom the summary of von Hammer might, with equal truth, apply. To believe nothing and to dare all was, in two words, the sum of this system, which annihilated every principle of religion and morality, and had no other object than to execute ambitious designs with suitable ministers, who daring all and knowing nothing, since they consider everything a cheat and nothing forbidden, all the best tools of an infernal policy. A system which, with no other aim than the gratification of an insatiable lust for domination, instead of seeking the highest of human objects, precipitates itself into the abyss and, mangling itself, is buried amidst the ruins of thrones and altars, the wreck of national happiness and the universal excretion of mankind. A system which, with no other aim than the gratification of an insatiable lust for domination, instead of seeking the highest of human objects, precipitates itself into the abyss and mangling itself, is buried amidst the ruins of thrones and altars, the wreck of national happiness and the universal execration of mankind. The Druzes. The terrible Grand Lodge of Cairo before long became the center of a new and extraordinary cult. Hakim Sixth Fatimite, Caliph and founder of the Dar-ul-Hikmat, a monster of tyranny and crime whose reign can only be compared to that of Caligula or Nero, was now raised to the place of a divinity by one Ismail, Darazi, a Turk who in 1016 announced in a mosque in Cairo that the Khalifa should be made an object of worship. Hakim, who believed that divine reason was incarnate in him, four years later proclaimed himself a deity. And the cult was finally established by one of his viziers, the Persian mystic Hamza ibn Ali. Hakim's cruelties, however, had so outraged the people of Egypt that a year later he was murdered by a band of malcontents, led, it is said, by his sister, who afterwards concealed his body. A circumstance which gave his followers the opportunity to declare that the divinity had merely vanished in order to test the faith of believers but would reappear in time and punish apostates. This belief became the doctrine of the Druzes of Lebanon, whom Darazi had won over to the worship of Hakim. It is unnecessary to enter into the details of this strange religion, which still persists today in the range of Lebanon. Suffice it to say that although the outcome of the Ismailis, the Druzes do not appear to have embraced the materialism of Abdullah ibn Maimun but to have grafted on a primitive form of nature-worship and of Sabiism, the avowed belief of the Ismailis in the dynasty of Ali and his successors, and beyond this, an abstruse, esoteric creed concerning the nature of the supreme deity. God, they declared, to be universal reason, who manifests himself by a series of avatars. Hakim was the last of the divine embodiments. And when evil and misery have increased to the predestined height, he will appear again, to conquer the world and to make his religion supreme. It is, however, a secret society that the Druzes enter into the scope of this book, for their organization presents several analogies with that which we now know as Masonic. Instead of the nine degrees instituted by the Lodge of Cairo, the Druzes are divided into only three— profanes, aspirants, and wise— to whom their doctrines are gradually unfolded under seal of the strictest secrecy, to ensure which signs and passwords are employed after the manner of Freemasonry. A certain degree of duplicity appears to enter into their scheme, much resembling that enjoined to the Ismaili days, when enlisting proselytes belonging to other religions. Thus, in talking to Mohammedans, the Druzes profess to be the followers of the Prophet; With Christians, they pretend to hold the Christians of Christianity an attitude they defend on a score that is unlawful to reveal the secret dogmas of their creed to a black or unbeliever. The Druzes are in the habit of holding meetings where, as in the Dar-ul-Hikmat, both men and women assemble and religious and political questions are discussed. The uninitiated, however, are allowed to exercise no influence on decisions, which are reached by the inner circle to which only the wise are admitted. The resemblance between this organization and that of the Grand Orient Freemasonry is clearly apparent. The Druzes also have modes of recognition which are common to Freemasonry, and M. aquil Laurent has observed the formula or catechism of the Druzes resembles that of the Freemasons. One can learn it only from the Akals or Akels, equals intelligent, a small group of higher initiates who only reveal its mysteries after having subjected one to tests and made one to take terrible oaths. I shall refer again later in this book to the affinity between Druzes and the Freemasons of the Grand Orient. The Assassins It will be seen that the Druzes, distinguishing themselves from other Ismaili sects by their worship of Hakim, yet retaining genuine religious beliefs, had not carried on the atheistical tradition of Abdullah ibn Maimun and of the Grand Lodge of Cairo. But this tradition was to find in 1090 an exponent in the Persian Hassan Sabah, a native of Corazon, the son of Ali, a strict Shia, who, finding himself suspected of heretical ideas, ended by declaring himself a Sunni. Hassan brought up in this atmosphere of duplicity, was therefore well-fitted to play the Machiavellian role of Ismaili Dai. Von Hammer regards Hassan as a mighty genius, one of the splendid triad, of which the two others were his schoolfellows, the poet Omar Khayyam and Nizam Umuk, Grand Vizier under the Seljuk Sultan, Malik Shah. Hassan, having through the protection of Nizim, Ulmukh secured titles and revenues and finally risen to the office at the court of the sultan, attempted to supplant his benefactor and eventually retire in disgrace, vowing vengeance against the sultan and vizier. At this juncture, he encountered several Ismailis, one of whom Adai, named Mumin, finally converted him to the principles of the sect, and Hassan, declaring himself now to be a convinced adherent to the Fatimite caliphs journeyed to Cairo, where he received with honor by the Dar-ul-Hikmat and also by the Khalifa Mostensir, to whom he became counselor. But his intrigues once more involving him in disgrace, he fled to Aleppo and laid the foundations of his new sect. After enlisting proselytes in Baghdad, Ispan, Khuzistan, and Damagan, He succeeded in obtaining a strategy, the fortress of Alamut in Persia, on the Caspian Sea, where he completed the plans for his great secret society, which was to become forever infamous under the name of the Hashishin, or Assassins. Under the pretense of belief in the doctrines of Islam, and also of the adherence to the Ismaili line of succession from the Prophet, Hassan Saba now set out to pave his way to power, and in order to achieve this end adopted the same method as Abdullah ibn Mamun. But the terrible efficiency of Hassan's society consisted in the fact that a system of physical force was now organized in a manner undreamt of by his predecessor. As von Hammer has observed in an admirable passage, opinions are powerless so long as they only confuse the brain without arming the hand. Scepticism and free thinking, as long as they occupied only the minds of the indolent and philosophical, have caused the ruin of no throne, for which purpose religious and political fanaticism are the strongest levers in the hands of nations. It is nothing to the ambitious man what people believe, but it is everything to know how he may turn them for the execution of his projects. Thus, as in the case of the French Revolution, whose first movers von Hammer also observes were the tools or leaders of secret societies. It was not merely theory, but the method of enlisting numerous dupes and placing weapons in their hands that brought about the terror of the assassins six centuries before that of the spiritual descendants, the Jacobins of 1793. Taking as his groundwork the organization of the Grand Lodge of Cairo, Hussain reduced the nine degrees to their original number of seven. But these now received a definite nomenclature and included not only real initiates but active agents. Descending downwards, the degrees of the assassins were thus as follows First, the Grand Master, known as the Sheikh, Al Jabal, or Old Man of the Mountain, owing to the fact that the order always possessed itself of castles in mountainous regions. Second, the Dale Kibir, or Grand Priors. Third, the fully initiated Dais, religious. Nuncios and political emissaries. Fourth, the Rafiks or associates in training for the higher degrees. Fifth, the Fede or devoted who undertook to deliver the secret blow on which their superiors had decided. Sixth, the Lassicus or law brothers. And lastly, the common people who were to be simply blind instruments. If the equivalents to the words die, Rafiks, and Fade given by von Hammer and Dr. Bussel, as Master Masons, Fellow Crafts, and Entered Apprentices are accepted, an interesting analogy with the degrees of Freemasonry is provided. Designs against religion were, of course, not admitted by the Order. Strict uniformity to Islam was demanded from all the lower rank of uninitiated, but the adept was taught to see through the deception of faith and works. He believed in nothing and recognized that all acts or means were indifferent and the secular and alone to be considered. Thus, the final object was dominated by a few men consumed with the lust of power, under the cloak of religion and piety. And the method by which this was to be established was the wholesale assassination of those who opposed them. In order to stimulate the energy of the fadé, who were required to carry out these crimes, the superiors of the order had recourse to an ingenious system of delusion. Throughout the territory occupied by the assassins were exquisite gardens with fruit trees. Bowers of roses and sparkling streams. Here were arranged luxurious resting places with Persian carpets and soft divans, around which hovered black-eyed horis, bearing wine in gold and silver drinking vessels, whilst soft music mingling with the murmuring water and the sounds of birds. The young man, whom the assassins desired to train for a career of crime, was introduced to the Grand Master of the Order and intoxicated with hashish, hence the name Hashishin applied to the sect, from which the word assassin is derived. Under the brief spell of unconsciousness induced by this seductive drug, the prospective fadai was then carried into the garden, where on awakening he believed himself to be in paradise. After enjoying all its delights, he was given a fresh dose of the opiate, and once more unconscious, was transported back to the presence of the Grand Master who assured him that he had never left his side, but had merely experienced a foretaste of the paradise that awaited him if he obeyed the orders of his chiefs. The neophyte, thus spurred on by the belief that he was carrying out the commands of the prophet, who would reward him with eternal bliss, eagerly entered into the schemes laid down for him and devoted his life to murder. Thus, by the lure of paradise, the assassins enlisted instruments for their criminal work and established a system of organized murder on a basis of religious fervor. Nothing is true and all is allowed, was the ground of their secret doctrine, which, however, being imparted to but a few, and concealed under the veil of the most austere religionism and piety, restrained the mind under the yoke of blind obedience. To the outside world all this remained a profound mystery. Fidelity to Islam was proclaimed as the fundamental doctrine of the sect, and when the envoy of Sultan Sejar was sent to collect information on the religious beliefs of the Order, he was met with the assurance, We believe in the unity of God, and consider that only as true wisdom which accords with his word and the commands of the Prophet. Von Hammer answering the possible contention that, as is in the case with the Templars and the Bavarian Illuminati, These methods of deception might be declared a calumny on the order. Points out that in the case of the assassins, no possible doubt existed, for their secret doctrines were eventually revealed by the leaders themselves. First, by Hassan II, the third successor of Hassan Saba, and later by Jalal ud din Hassan, who publicly anathemized the founders of the sect and ordered the burning of the books that contained their designs against religion. A proceeding which, however, appears to have been a strategic maneuver for restoring confidence in the Order and enabling him to continue the work of subversion and crime. A veritable reign of terror was thus established throughout the East. The Rafiks and Fadé spread themselves in troops over the whole of Asia and darkened the face of the earth. And in the annals of the assassins is found the chronological enumeration of celebrated men of all nations who have fallen the victims of the Ismailis to the joy of their murderers and the sorrow of the world. Inevitably, this long and systematic indulgence in bloodlust recoiled on the heads of the leaders, and the assassins, like the terrorists of France, ended by turning on each other. The old man of the mountain himself was murdered by his brother-in-law and his son, Mohammed. Mohammed, in his turn, whilst aiming at the life of his son, jula ud was anticipated by him with poison, which murder was again avenged by poison so that from Hussan the Illuminator down to the last of his line the Grandmasters fell by the hands of their next of kin, and poison and the dagger prepared the grave, which the order had opened for so many. Finally, in 1250, the conquering hordes of the Mongol Mangu Khan swept away the dynasty of the assassins. But although as reigning powers the Assassins and Fatimites cease to exist, the sects from which they derived have continued up to the present day, still every year at the celebration of the Muharram. The Shias beat their breasts and besprinkle themselves with blood, calling aloud on their martyred heroes Hassan and Hussein. The Druzes of the Lebanon still await the return of Hakim. And in that inscrutable East, the cradle of all the mysteries, the profoundest European adept of secret society intrigue may find himself outdistanced by past masters in the art in which he believed himself proficient. The sect of Hassan Sabah was the supreme model on which all systems of organized murder, working through fanaticism, such as the Carbonari and the Irish Republic Brotherhood, were based— and the signs, the symbols, the initiations of the Grand Lodge of Cairo formed the groundwork for the great secret societies of Europe. How came this system to be transported to the West? By what channel did the ideas of these succeeding Eastern sects penetrate to the Christian world? In order to answer this question, we must turn to the history of the Crusades. Chapter 3. The Templars in the year 1118, 19 years after the First Crusade had ended with the defeat of the Muslims, the capture of Antioch and Jerusalem, and the installment of Godefroy de Bouillon as king of the latter city, a band of nine French gentlehomes led by Hugues de Payens and Godfrey de Saint-Omer formed themselves into an order for the protection of pilgrims to the Holy Sepulchre. Baldwin II, who at this moment succeeded to the throne of Jerusalem, presented them with a house near the site of the Temple of Solomon, hence the name of Knights Templar, under which they were to become famous. In 1128, the order was sanctioned by the Council of Troyes and by the Pope, and a rule was drawn up by Saint Bernard, under which the Knights Templar were bound by the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But although the Templars distinguished themselves by many deeds of valor, the regulation that they were to live solely on alms led to donations so enormous that, abandoning their vow of poverty, they spread themselves over Europe, and by the end of the 12th century had become a rich and powerful body. The motto that the Order had inscribed upon its banner, Non nobis domin sed nominae tuo da gloriam, was likewise forgotten, for their faith waxing cold, they gave themselves up to pride and ostentation. Thus, as an 18th-century Masonic writer has expressed it, The war, which for the greater number of warriors of good faith proved the source of wariness, of losses and misfortunes, became for them, the Templars, only the opportunity for booty and aggrandizement. And if they distinguished themselves by a few brilliant actions, their motives soon ceased to be a matter of doubt when they were seen to enrich themselves even with the spoils of the Confederates to increase their credit by the extent of the new possessions they had acquired, to carry arrogance to the point of rivaling crowned princes in pomp and grandeur, to refuse their aid against the enemies of the faith, as the history of Saladin testifies, and finally to ally themselves with that horrible and sanguinary prince named the Old Man of the Mountain, Prince of the Assassins. The truth of the last accusation is, however, open to question. For a time, at any rate, the Templars had been at war with the assassins. When, in 1152, the assassins murdered Raymond, Comte de Tripoli, the Templars entered their territory and forced them to sign a treaty by which they were to pay a yearly tribute of 12,000 gold pieces in expatiation of the crime. Some years later, the old man of the mountain sent an ambassador to Amory, king of Jerusalem, to tell him privately that if the Templars would forego the payment of this tribute, he and his followers would embrace the Christian faith. Amory accepted, offering at the same time to compensate the Templars, but some of the knights assassinated the ambassador before he could return to his master. When asked for reparations, the Grand Master threw the blame on an evil one-eyed knight named Gautier de Mesnil. It is evident, therefore, that the relations between the Templars and the assassins were at first far from amicable, Nevertheless, it appears probable that later on an understanding was brought about between them. Both on this charge and that of treachery towards the Christian armies, Dr. Boussel's impartial view of the question may be quoted. When, in 1149, the Emperor Conrad III failed before Damascus, the Templars were believed to have a secret understanding with the garrison of that city. In 1154, they were said to have sold for 60,000 gold pieces— a prince of Egypt who had wished to become a Christian. He was taken home to suffer certain death at the hands of his fanatical family. In 1166, Amari, king of Jerusalem, hanged twelve members of the order for betraying a fortress to Neriden. And Dr. Bussell goes on to say that it cannot be disputed that they had long and important dealings with the assassins, and were therefore suspected, not unfairly, of imbibing their precepts and following their principles. By the end of the 13th century, the Templars had become suspect, not only in the eyes of the clergy, but of the general public. Amongst the common people, one of their latest apologists admits vague rumors circulated. They talked of the covetousness and want of scruple of the knights, of their passion for aggrandizement and their rapacity. Their haughty insolence was proverbial. Drinking habits were attributed to them. The saying was already in use to drink like a Templar. The old German word, Temple House, indicated a house of ill fame. The same rumors had reached Clement V, even before his accession to the papal throne in 1305, and in this same year he summoned the Grand Master of the Order, Jacques Molay, to return to France from the island of Cyprus, where he was assembling fresh forces to avenge the recent reverses of the Christian armies. Molay arrived in France with 60 other knights Templar and 150,000 gold florins as well as a large quantity of silver that the Order had assumed in the East. The Pope now set himself to make inquiries concerning the charges of unspeakable apostasy against God, detestable idolatry, execrable vice, and many heresies that have been secretly intimated to him. But, to quote his own words, Because it did not seem likely nor credible that such men of religion, who were believed often to shed their blood and frequently expose their persons to the peril of death, for Christ's name, and who showed such great and many signs of devotion, both in divine offices as well as in fasts, as in other devotional observances, should be so forgetful of their salvation as to do these things, we were unwilling to give ear to this kind of insinuation. The King of France, Philip Lebel, who had thereto been the friend of the Templars, now became alarmed and urged the Pope to take action against them. But before the Pope was able to find out more about the matter, the King took the law into his own hands and had all the Templars in France arrested on October 13, 1307. The following charges were then brought against them by the Inquisitor for France, before whom they were examined. One, the ceremony of initiation into their order was accompanied by insults to the cross, the denial of Christ, and gross obscenities. Two, the adoration of an idol which was said to be the image of the true God. 3. The omission of the words of consecration at Mass. 4. The right that the lay chiefs arrogated to themselves of giving absolution. 5. The authorization of unnatural vice. To all these infamies, a great number of the knights, including Jacques molay confessed in almost precisely the same terms. At their admission into the order, they said, they had been shown the cross on which was the figure of Christ, and had been asked whether they believed in Him. When they answered yes, they were told in some cases that this was wrong, because he was not God. He was a false prophet. Some added that they were shown an idol or a bearded head, which they were told to worship. One added that this was of such a terrible aspect that it seemed to him to be the face of some devil, called in French un and that whenever he saw it, he was so overcome with fear that he could hardly look at it without fear and trembling. All who confessed declared that they had been ordered to spit on the crucifix, and very many that they had received the injunction to commit obscenities and to practice unnatural vice. Some said that on their refusal to carry out these orders they had been threatened with imprisonment, even perpetual imprisonment. A few said that they had actually been incarcerated. One declared that he had been terrorized, seized by the throat, and threatened with death. Since, however, a number of these confessions were made under torture, it is important to consider the evidence provided by the trial of the knights at the hands of the Pope, where this method was not employed. Now, at the time the Templars were arrested, Clement V, deeply resenting the king's interference with an order which existed entirely under papal jurisdiction, wrote in the strongest terms of remonstrance to Philip Bel, urging their release. And even after their trial, neither the confessions of the knights nor the angry expostulations of the king could persuade him to believe in their guilt. But as the scandal concerning the Templars was increasing, he consented to receive in private audience a certain knight of the order, a great nobility, and held by the said order in no slight esteem. Who testified to the abominations that took place on the reception of the brethren the spitting on the cross, and other things which were not lawful nor, humanly speaking, decent. The Pope then decided to hold an examination of seventy-two French knights at Postiere in order to discover whether the confessions made by them before the Inquisitor of Paris could be substantiated, and at this examination, conducted without torture or pressure of any kind in the presence of the Pope himself, the witnesses declared on oath that they would tell the full and pure truth. They then made confessions which were committed to writing in their presence, and these being afterwards read aloud to them, they expressly and willingly approved them. Besides this, an examination of the Grand Master, Jacques Molay and the preceptors of the order was held in the presence of the three cardinals and four public notaries and many other good men. These witnesses, says the official report, having sworn with their hands on the gospel of God that they would on all the aforesaid things speak the pure and full truth. They, separately, freely, and spontaneously, without any coercion and fear, deposed and confessed, among other things, the denial of Christ and spitting upon the cross when they were received into the order of the temple. And some of them deposed and confessed that under the same form, namely with denial of Christ and spitting on the cross, they had received many brothers into the order. Some of them, too, confessed certain other horrible and disgusting things on which we are silent. Besides this, they said and confessed that those things which are contained in the confessions and depositions of heretical depravity, which they made lately before the Inquisitor of Paris, were true. Their confessions, being again committed to writing, were approved by the witnesses, who then with bended knees and many tears asked for and obtained absolution. The Pope, however, still refused to take action against the whole order, merely because the master and brethren around him had gravely sinned, and it was decided to hold a papal commission in Paris. The first sitting took place in November 1309, when the Grand Master and 231 knights were summoned before the pontifical commissioners. This inquiry, says Michelet, was conducted slowly with much consideration and gentleness by high ecclesiastical dignitaries, an archbishop, several bishops, etc. But although a number of the knights, including the Grand Master, now retracted their admissions, some damning confessions were again forthcoming. It is impossible within the scope of this book to follow the many trials of the Templars that took place in different countries, in Italy, at Ravina, Pisa, Bologna, and Florence, where torture was not employed and blasphemies were admitted or in Germany, where torture was employed, but no confessions were made, and a verdict was given in favour of the order. A few details concerning the trial in England may, however, be of interest. It has generally been held that torture was not applied in England, owing to the humanity of Edward II, who at first absolutely refused to listen to any accusations against the order. On December 10th, 1307, he had written to the Pope in these terms, And because the said master or brethren, constant in the purity of the Catholic faith, have been frequently commended by us, and by all our kingdom, both in their life and morals, we are unable to believe in suspicious stories of this kind until we know with greater certainty about these things. We therefore pity from our souls the suffering and losses of the said master and brethren, which they suffer in consequence of such infamy, and we supplicate most affectionately your sanctity, if it please you that considering with favour suited to the good character of the master and brethren, you may deem fit to meet with more indulgence the detractions, calumnies, and charges by certain envious and evil-disposed persons, who endeavour to turn their good deeds into works of perverseness opposed to divine teaching, until the said charges attributed to them shall have been brought legally before you or your representatives here, and more fully proved. Edward II also wrote in the same terms to the kings of Portugal, Castile, Aragon, and Sicily. But two years later, after Clement V had himself heard the confessions of the order, and a papal bull had been issued declaring the unspeakable wickedness and abominable crimes of notorious heresy, had now come to the knowledge of almost everyone, Edward II was persuaded to arrest the Templars and order their examination. According to Mr. Castle whose interesting treatise we quote here, the king would not allow torture to be employed, with the result that the knights denied all charges. But later it is said that he allowed himself to be over-persuaded and torture appears to have been applied on one or two occasions. With the result that three knights confessed to all and were given absolution. At Southwark, however, a considerable number of brethren admitted that They had been strongly accused of the crimes of negation and spitting. They did not say they were guilty, but that they could not purge themselves, and therefore they abjured these and all other heresies. Evidence was also given against the order by outside witnesses, and the same stories of intimidation at the ceremony of reception were told. At any rate, the result of the investigation was not altogether satisfactory, and the Templars were finally suppressed in England as elsewhere by the Council of Vienne, in 1312 in France more rigorous measures were adopted and 54 knights who had retracted their confessions were burnt at the stake as relapsed heretics on May 12th 1310 4 years later on March 14th 1314 the grand master jacques du molay suffered the same fate now however much we must execrate the barbarity of the sentence as also the cruelties that had preceded it This is no reason why we should admit the claim of the order to noble martyrdom put forward by the historians who have espoused their cause. The character of the Templars is not rehabilitated by condemning the conduct of the king and pope. Yet, this is the line of argument usually adopted by the defenders of the order. Thus, the two main contentions on which they base their defense are, firstly, that the confessions of the knights were made under torture, Therefore, they must be regarded as null and void, and secondly, that the whole affair was a plot concerted between the king and the pope in order to obtain possession of the Templar's riches. Let us examine these contentions in turn. In the first place, as we have seen, all confessions were not made under torture. No one, as far as I am aware, disputes Michelet's assertion that the inquiry before the Papal Commission in Paris, at which a number of knights adhered to the statements they had made to the pope, was conducted without pressure of any kind. But further, the fact that confessions are made under torture does not necessarily invalidate them as evidence. Guy Fawkes also confessed under torture, yet it is never suggested that the whole story of the gunpowder plot was a myth. Torture, however much we may condemn it, has frequently proved the only method for overcoming the intimidation exercised over the mind of a conspirator. A man bound by the terrible obligations of a confederacy and fearing the vengeance of his fellow conspirators will not readily yield to persuasion, but only to force. If then some of the Templars were terrorized by torture, or even by the fear of torture, it must not be forgotten that terrorism was exercised by both sides. Few will deny that the knights were bound by oaths of secrecy, so that on one hand they were threatened with the vengeance of the order if they betrayed its secrets, and on the other, faced with torture if they refused to confess. Thus, they found themselves between the devil and the deep sea. It was therefore not a case of a mild and unoffending order meeting with brutal treatment at the hands of authority, but of the victims of a terrible autocracy being delivered into the hands of another autocracy. Moreover, do the confessions of the knights appear to be the outcome of pure imagination such as men under the influence of torture might devise? It is certainly difficult to believe that the accounts of the ceremony of initiation, given in detail by men in different countries, all closely resembling each other, yet related in different phraseology, could be pure inventions. Had the victims been driven to invent, they would have surely contradicted each other, have cried out in their agony that all kinds of wild and fantastic rites had taken place in order to satisfy the demands of their interlocutors. But no, each appears to have described the same ceremony more or less completely, with characteristic touches that indicate the personality of the speaker, and in the main, all the stories tally. The further contention that the case against the Templars was manufactured by the King and Pope, with a view to obtaining their wealth, is entirely disproved by facts. The latest French historian of medieval France, whilst expressing disbelief in the guilt of the Templars, Characterizes this counter-accusation as puerile. Philip Lebelle, writes M. Funk Brentano, has never been understood. From the beginning people have not been just to him. This young prince was one of the greatest kings and the noblest characters that have appeared in history. Without carrying appreciation so far, one must nevertheless accord to M. Funk Brentano's statement of facts the attention it merits. Philip has been blamed for debasing the coin of the realm. In reality, he merely ordered it to be mixed with alloy as a necessary measure after the war with England, precisely as own coinage was debased in consequence of the recent war. This was done quite openly, and the coinage was restored at the earliest opportunity. Intensely national, his policy of attacking the Lombards, exiling the Jews, and suppressing the Templars, however regrettable the methods by which it was carried out, Resulted in immense benefits to France. M. Funk-Brentano has graphically described the prosperity of the whole country during the early 14th century, the increase of population, flourishing agriculture and industry. In Provence and Languedoc, one meets swineherds who have vineyards, simple cowherds who have townhouses. The attitude of Philip Lebel towards the Templars must be viewed in this light. Ruthless suppression of any body of people who interfered with the prosperity of France. His action was not that of arbitrary authority. He proceeded, says M. Funk Brentano, by means of an appeal to the people. In his name, Nogaret, the Chancellor, spoke to the Parisians in the Garden of the Palace, October 13, 1307. Popular assemblies were convoked all over France. The Parliament of Tours, with hardly a dissentient vote, declared the Templars worthy of death. The University of Paris gave the weight of their judgment as to the fullness and authenticity of the Confessions. Even assuming that these bodies were actuated by the same servility as that which had been attributed to the Pope, how are we to explain the fact that the trial of the order aroused no opposition among the far from docile people of Paris? If the Templars had indeed, as they professed, been leading noble and upright lives, devoting themselves to the care of the poor, One might surely expect their arrest to be followed by popular risings, but there appears to have been no sign of this. As to the Pope, we have already seen that from the outset he shown himself extremely reluctant to condemn the order, and no satisfactory explanation is given of his change of attitude except that he wished to please the king. As far as his own interests were concerned, it is obvious that he could have nothing to gain by publishing to the world a scandal that must inevitably bring opprobrium to the church. His lamentations to this effect in the famous bull clearly show that he recognized this danger and therefore desired at all costs to clear the accused knights, if evidence could be obtained in their favor. It was only when the Templars made damning admissions in his presence that he was obliged to abandon their defense. Yet we are told that he did this out of base compliance with the wishes of Philip Lebel. Philip Lebel is thus represented as the arch-villain of the whole piece. Through seven long years, hounding down a blameless order, from whom up to the very moment of their arrest he had repeatedly received loans of money, solely with the object of appropriating their wealth. Yet after all we find the property of the Templars was not appropriated by the king, but was given by him to the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem. What was the fate of the Templars' goods? Philip Lebel decided that they should be handed over to the hospitaliers. Clement V states that the orders given by the king on this subject were executed. Even the domain of the Templar in Paris, up to the eve of the Revolution, was the property of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem. The royal treasury kept for itself certain sums for the cost of the trial. These had been immense. These facts in no way daunt the antagonists of Philip, who we are now assured, again without any proof whatever, was overruled by the Pope in this matter. But setting all morality aside as a mere question of policy, it is likely that the king would have deprived himself of this most valuable financial supporters, and gone to the immense trouble of bringing them to trial without first assuring himself that he would benefit by the affair. Would he, in other words, have killed the goose that laid the golden eggs without any guarantee that the body of the goose would remain in his possession? Again, if, as we are told, the Pope suppressed the order so as to please the king, why should he have thwarted him over the whole purpose the king had in view? Might we not expect indignant remonstrances from Philip, and thus been balked of the booty he had toiled so long to gain? but on the contrary, we find him completely in agreement with the Pope on this subject. In November 1309, Clement V distinctly stated that Philippe the illustrious King of France, to whom the facts concerning the Templars had been told, was not prompted by avarice since he desired to keep or appropriate for himself no part of the property of the Templars, but liberally and devotedly left them to us and the Church to be administered, etc., Thus, the whole theory concerning the object for which the Templars were suppressed falls to the ground, a theory which on examination is seen to be built up entirely on the plan of imputing motives without any justification in facts. The king acted from cupidity, the pope from servility, and the Templars confessed from fear of torture. On these pure hypotheses, defenders of the order base their arguments. The truth is, far more probably, that if the king had any additional reason for suppressing the Templars, it was not the envy of their wealth, but fear of the immense power their wealth conferred. The order dared even to defy the king and to refuse to pay taxes. The temple, in fact, constituted an imperium imperio that threatened not only the royal authority, but the whole social system. An important light is thrown on the situation by M. Funk Brentano in this message. As the Templars had houses in all countries they practiced the financial operations of the international banks of our times they were acquainted with letters of change orders payable at sight they instituted dividends and annuities on deposited capital advanced funds lent on credit controlled private accounts undertook to raise taxes for the lay and ecclesiastical seniors through their proficiency in these matters acquired very possibly from the Jews of Alexandria whom they must have met in the east the templars had become the international financiers and international capitalists of their day had they not been suppressed all the evils now denounced by socialists as peculiar to the system they describe as capitalism trusts monopolies and corners would in all probability have been inaugurated during the course of the 14th century in a far worse form than at the present day since no legislation existed to protect the community at large The feudal system, as Marx and Engels perceived, was the principal obstacle to exploitation by a financial autocracy. Moreover, it is by no means improbable that this order of things would have been brought about by the violent overthrow of the French monarchy, indeed of all monarchies. The Templars, those terrible conspirators, says Eliphas Levi, threatened the whole world with an immense revolution. Here perhaps we find the reason why this band of dissolute and rapacious nobles had enlisted the passionate sympathy of democratic writers for it will be noticed that these same writers who attribute the king's condemnation of the order to envy of their wealth never applied this argument to the demagogues of the 18th century and suggest that their accusations against the nobles of france were inspired by cupidity nor would they ever admit that any such motive may enter into the diatribes against private owners of wealth today The Templars thus remain the only body of capitalists, with the exception of the Jews, to be not only pardoned for their riches, but exalted as noble victims of prejudice and envy. Is it merely because the Templars were the enemies of monarchy? Or is it that the world revolution, whilst attacking private owners of property, has never been opposed to international finance, particularly when combined with anti-Christian tendencies? It is the continued defense of the Templars which, to the present writer, appears the most convincing evidence against them. For even if one believes them innocent of the crimes laid to their charge, how is it possible to admire them in their later stages? The fact that cannot be denied is that they were false to their obligations. That they took the vow of poverty and then grew not only rich but arrogant. That they took the vow of chastity and became notoriously immoral. Are all these things then condoned because the Templars formed a link in the chain of world revolution? At this distance of time, the guilt or innocence of the Templars will probably never be conclusively established either way. On the mass of conflicting evidence bequeathed to us by history, no one can pronounce a final judgment. Without attempting to dogmatize on the question, I would suggest that the real truth may be that the knights were both innocent and guilty. That is to say, that a certain number were initiated into the secret doctrine of the order, whilst the majority remained throughout in ignorance. Thus, according to the evidence of Stephen de Stapelbruch, an English knight, there were two modes of reception, one lawful and good, and the other contrary to the faith. This would account for the fact that some of the accused declined to confess, even under the greatest pressure. These may really have known nothing of the real doctrines of the order which were confided orally only to those whom the superiors regarded as unlikely to be revolted by them. Such have always been the methods of secret societies from the Ismailis onward. This theory of a double doctrine is put forward by Louis Lur, who observes, If we consult the statutes of the order of the temple, as they have come down to us, we shall certainly discover there is nothing that justifies the strange and abominable practices revealed at the inquiry. But besides the public rule, had not the order another one, whether traditional or written, authorizing or even prescribing these practices, a secret rule revealed only to the initiates? Eliphas Levi also exonerates the majority of the Templars from complicity in either anti-monarchical or anti-religious designs. These tendencies were enveloped in profound mystery, and the order made an outward profession of the most perfect orthodoxy. The chiefs alone knew whither they were going. The rest followed unsuspectingly. What, then, was the Templar heresy? On this point, we find a variety of opinions. According to Wilk, Rank, and Weber, it was the Unitarian deism of Islam. L'Equittal de Cantelou, thinks, however, it was derived from heretical Islamic sources, and relates that whilst in Palestine one of the knights, Guillaume de Montbard, was initiated by the old man of the mountain in a cave of Mount Lebanon. That a certain resemblance existed between the Templars and the Assassins has been indicated by von Hammer and further emphasized by the Freemason Clavel. Oriental historians show us at different periods the order of the Templars maintaining intimate relations with that of the Assassins, and they insist on the infinity that existed between the two associations. They remarked that they had adopted the same colors, white and red. That they had the same organization, the same hierarchy of degrees, those of Fadavi, Rifik, and Dai, and one corresponding to those of the novice professed, and knight in the other. That both conspired for the ruin of the religions they professed in public, and that finally both possessed numerous castles, the former in Asia, the latter in Europe. But in spite of these outward resemblances, it does not appear from the confessions of the knights that the secret doctrine of the Templars was that of the assassins or of any Ismaili sect by which, in accordance with Orthodox Islamism, Jesus was openly held up as a prophet, although secretly, indifference to all religion was inculcated. The Templars, as far as can be discovered, were anti-Christian deists. Lois considers that their ideas were derived from Gnostic or Manichaean dualists, Gathari, Paulicians, or more particularly Bogomils, of which a brief account must be given here. The Paulicians, who flourished about the 7th century AD, bore a resemblance to the Cainites and Ophites in their detestation of the Demiurgists and in the corruption of their morals. Later, in the 9th century, the Bogomils, whose name signifies in Slavonic, friends of God, and who had migrated from northern Syria and Mesopotamia to the Balkan Peninsula, particularly Thrace, appeared as a further development of Manichaean dualism. Their doctrine may be summarized thus. God, the Supreme Father, has two sons, the elder Satanel, the younger Jesus. To Setanel, who sat on the right hand of God, belonged the right of governing the celestial world. But filled with pride, he rebelled against his Father and fell from heaven. Then, aided by the companions of his fall, he created the visible world, image of the celestial, having like the other its sun, moon, and stars, and last he created man and the serpent which became his minister. Later Christ came to earth in order to show man the way to heaven. But his death was ineffectual, for even by descending into hell he could not wrest the power from Setanael, i.e. Satan. This belief in the impotence of Christ and the necessity, therefore, for placating Satan, not only the prince of this world, but its creator, led to the further doctrine that Satan, being all-powerful, should be adored. Nesitas Koniatis, a Byzantine historian of the 12th century, described the followers of this cult as Satanists, because, considering Satan powerful, they worshipped him, lest he might do them harm. Subsequently, they were known as Luciferians, their doctrine as stated by Neus and Vido being that Lucifer was unjustly driven out of heaven, that one day he will ascend there again and be restored to his former glory and power in the celestial world. The Bogomils and Luciferians were thus closely akin, but whilst the former divided their worship between God and his two sons— The latter worshipped Lucifer only, regarding the material world as his work and holding that by indulging the flesh, they were propitiating their demon creator. It was said that a black cat, the symbol of Satan, figured in their ceremonies as an object of worship. Also, that at their horrible nocturnal orgies, sacrifices of children were made, and their blood used for making the Eucharistic bread of the sect. Thus, the Templars recognized at the same time a good God incommunicable to man and consequently without symbolic representation, and a bad god, to whom they give the features of an idol of fearful aspect. Their most fervent worship was addressed to this god of evil, who alone could enrich them. They said with the Luciferians, The elder son of God, Setanel, or Lucifer, alone has a right to the homage of mortals. Jesus, his younger brother, does not deserve this honor. Although we shall not find these ideas so clearly defined in the Confessions of the Knights, some color is lent to this theory by those who related that the reason given to them for not believing in Christ was that he knew nothing, he was a false prophet and of no value, and that they should believe in the higher God of heaven who could save them. According to Loisler, The idol they were taught to worship, the bearded head known to history as Baphomet, represented the inferior god, organizer and dominator of the material world, author of good and evil here below, him by whom evil was introduced into creation. The etymology of the word Baphomet is difficult to discover. Renord says it originated with two witnesses heard at Carcassonne, who spoke of Figura Baphometi and suggest that it was a corruption of Muhammad, whom the inquisitors wished to make the knights confess they were taught to adore. But this surmise with regard to the intentions of the inquisitors seems highly improbable, since they must have been well aware that, as Wilkie points out, the Muslims forbid all idols. For this reason Wilkie concludes that the Mohammedanism of the Templars was combined with Kabbalism, and that their idol was in reality the Macroposophus, or head of the ancient of ancients represented as an old man with a long beard, or sometimes as three heads in one, which has already been referred to under the name of the long face in the first chapter of this book, a theory which would agree with Eliphas Levi's assertion that the Templars were initiated into the mysterious doctrines of the Kabbalah. But Levi goes on to define this teaching under the name of Johannism. It is here that we reach a further theory with regard to the secret doctrine of the Templars, the most important of all, since it emanates from Masonic and Neo-Templar sources. Thus, effectually disposing of the contention that the charge brought about against the order of apostasy from the Catholic faith is solely the invention of Catholic writers. In 1842, the Freemason Ragón related that the Templars learnt from the initiates of the East, a certain Judaic doctrine which was attributed to St. John the Apostle. Therefore, they renounced the religion of St. Peter and become Johannites. Elephas Levi expresses the same opinion. Now, these statements are apparently founded on a legend which was first published early in the 19th century, when an association calling itself Ordu du Temple and claiming direct descent from the original Templar order published two works, the Manual de Chevalier de L'Ordre du Temple in 1811 and the Levitican in 1831. Together with a version of the Gospel of St. John differing from the Vulgate. These books, which appear to have been printed only for private circulation amongst the members and are now extremely rare, relate that the Order of the Temple had never ceased to exist since the days of Jacques de Molay, who appointed Jacques de Larminier his successor in an office. And from that time onwards, a line of Grand Masters had succeeded each other without a breakup to the end of the 18th century when it ceased for a brief period but was reinstituted under a grand master, Fabra Palaprat, in 1804. Besides publishing the list of all grand masters known as the Charter of Larminius, said to have been preserved in the secret archives of the temple, these works also reproduce another document drawn from the same repository, describing the origins of the order. This manuscript, written in Greek on parchment, dated 1154 purports to be taken from a 5th century M.S., and relates to that Hugues de Payens, first Grandmaster of the Templars, was initiated in 1118, that is to say in the year the Order was founded, into the religious doctrine of the primitive Christian Church, by its sovereign pontiff and patriarch, Theocle, 60th in direct succession from St. John the Apostle, The history of the primitive church is then given as follows. Moses was initiated in Egypt, profoundly versed in the physical, theological, and metaphysical mysteries of the priests. He knew how to profit by these, so as to surmount the power of the mages and deliver his companions. Aaron, his brother, and the chiefs of the Hebrews became the depositories of his doctrine. The Son of God afterwards appeared on the scene of the world. He was brought up at the school of Alexandria. Imbued with a spirit, holy, divine, endowed with the most astounding qualities, dispositions, he was able to reach all the degrees of Egyptian initiation. On his return to Jerusalem, he presented himself before the chiefs of the synagogue. Jesus Christ, directing the fruit of his lofty meditations towards universal civilization and the happiness of the world, rent the veil which concealed the truth from the peoples. He preached the love of God, the love of one's neighbor, and equality before the common Father of all men. Jesus conferred evangelical initiation on his apostles and disciples. He transmitted his spirit to them, divided them into several orders after the practice of John, the beloved disciple, the apostle of fraternal love, whom he had instituted sovereign pontiff and patriarch. Here we have the whole Kabbalistic legend of the secret doctrine descending from Moses, of Christ as an Egyptian initiate and founder of a secret order. A theory, of course, absolutely destructive of belief in his divinity. The legend of the order du Temple goes on to say, up to about the year 1118, i.e. the year of the order of the Temple was founded, the mysteries in the hierarchic order of the initiation of Egypt transmitted to the Jews by Moses then to the Christians by J.C., were religiously preserved by the successors of St. John the Apostle. These mysteries and initiations, regenerated by the evangelical initiation or baptism, were a sacred trust which the simplicity of the primitive and unchanging morality of the brothers of the East had preserved from all adulteration the christians persecuted by the infidels appreciating the courage and piety of these brave crusaders who with the sword in one hand and the cross in the other flew to the defense of the holy places and above all doing striking justice to the virtues and the ardent charity of hugues de payens held it their duty to confide to hands so pure the treasures of knowledge acquired through many centuries sanctified by the cross the dogma and the morality of the man god Hughes was invested with the apostolic patriarchal power and placed in the legitimate order of the successors of St. John the Apostle or the Evangelist, such as the origin of the foundation of the order of the temple, and of the fusion in this order of the different kinds of initiation of the Christians of the East, designated under the title of primitive Christians or Johannites. It will be seen at once that all this story is subtly subversive of true Christianity, and that the appellation of Christians applied to the Johannites is an imposture. Indeed, Fabre Palaprat, a grand master of the Order du Temple in 1804, who in his book on the Templars repeats the story contained in the Levitican and the Manuel de Chevalier du Temple, whilst making the same profession of primitive Christian, doctrines descending from St. John through Theocle and Hugues de Payens to the order over which he presides. goes on to say that the secret doctrine of the Templars was essentially contrary to the canons of the Church of Rome, and that it is principally to this fact that one must attribute the persecution of which history has preserved the memory. The belief of the primitive Christians, and consequently that the Templars, with regard to the miracles of Christ, is that he, did or may have done extraordinary or miraculous things. And that since God can do things incomprehensible to human intelligence, the primitive Church venerates all the acts of Christ as they are described in the Gospel, whether it considers them as acts of human science or whether as acts of divine power. Belief in the divinity of Christ is thus left an open question, and the same attitude is maintained towards the resurrection of which the story is omitted in the gospel of St John possessed by the order fabra palaprat further admits that the gravest accusations brought against the templars were founded on facts which he attempts to explain away in the following manner the templars having in 1307 carefully abstracted all the manuscripts composing the secret archives of the order from the search made by authority and these authentic manuscripts having been precisely preserved since that period we have today the certainty that the knights endured a great number of religious and moral trials before reaching the different degrees of initiation. Thus, for example, the recipient might receive the injunction under pain of death, to trample on the crucifix or to worship an idol. But if he yielded to the terror which they sought to inspire in him, he was declared unworthy of being admitted to the higher grades of the order. One can imagine in this way how beings, too feeble or too immoral to endure the trials of initiation, may have accused the Templars of giving themselves up to infamous practices and of having superstitious beliefs. It is certainly not surprising that an order which gave such injunctions as these, for whatever purpose, should have become the object of suspicion. Eliphas Levi, who, like Ragon, Accepts the statements of the Order du Temple concerning the Johannites, origin of the Templar secret doctrine, is however not deceived by these professions of Christianity, and boldly asserts that the sovereign pontiff Theocle initiated Hugues de Payen into the mysteries and hopes of his pretended church. He lured him by the ideas of sacerdotal sovereignty and supreme royalty. He indicated him finally as his successor. So, the order of the Knights of the Temple was stained from its origin with schism and conspiracy against kings. Further, Levi relates that the real story to initiates concerning Christ was no other than the infamous Holdot Yeshu, described in the first chapter of this book, and which the Johannites dared to attribute to St. John. This would accord with the confession of the Catalonian Knight Templar, Galserandus, did too who stated that the form of absolution in the order was, I pray God that he may pardon your sins as he pardoned St. Mary Magdalene and that thief on the cross. But the witness went on to explain, By the thief of which the head of the chapter speaks is meant, according to our statutes, that Jesus, or Christ, who was crucified by the Jews because he was not God, and yet he said he was God and the King of the Jews, which was an outrage to the true God who is in heaven. When Jesus, a few moments before his death, had his side pierced by the lance of Longinus, he repented of having called himself God and King of the Jews, and he asked pardon of the true God. Then the true God pardoned him. It is thus that we apply to the crucified Christ these words, as God pardoned the thief on the cross. Reynard, who quotes this disposition, stigmatizes it as singular and extravagant. And matter agrees that it is doubtless extravagant, but that it merits attention. There was a whole system there, which was not the invention of Galserant. Eliphas Levi proves the clue to the system as to the reason why Christ was described as a thief, by indicating the Kabbalistic legend wherein he was described as having stolen the sacred name from the Holy of Holies. Elsewhere, he explains that the Johannites made themselves out to be the only people initiated into the true mysteries of the religion of the Savior. They professed to know the real history of Jesus Christ, and by adopting part of Jewish traditions and the stories of the Talmud, they made out that the facts related in the Gospels, that is to say, the Gospels accepted by the Orthodox Church, were only allegories of which St. John gives the key. But it is time to pass from legend to facts, for the whole story of the initiation of the Templars by the Johannites rests principally on the documents produced by the Order du Temple in 1811. According to the Abbe Gregoire and Munter, the authenticity and antiquity of these documents are beyond dispute. Gregoire, referring to the parchment manuscript of the Levitican and Gospel of St. John, says that, Hellenists versed in paleography believe this manuscript to be of the thirteenth century. Others declare it to be earlier and to go back to the eleventh century. Matter, on the other hand, quoting Munter's opinion that the manuscripts in the archives of the modern Templars date from the thirteenth century, observes that this is all a tissue of errors and that the critics, including the learned Professor Thilo of Halle, have recognized that the manuscript in question, far from belonging to the 13th century, dates from the beginning of the 18th. From the arrangement of the chapters of the Gospel, M. Matter arrives at the conclusion that it was intended to accompany the ceremonies of some Masonic or secret society. We shall return to this possibility in a later chapter. The antiquity of the manuscript containing the history of the Templars thus remains an open question, on which no one can pronounce an opinion without having seen the original. In order then to judge of the probability of the story that this manuscript contained, it is necessary to consult the facts of history and to discover what proof can be found that any such sect as the Johannites existed at the time of the Crusades or earlier. Certainly none is known to have been called by this name or by one resembling it before 1622, when some Portuguese monks reported the existence of a sect whom they described as Christians of St. John. Inhabiting the banks of the Euphrates. The appellation appears, however, to have been wrongly applied by the monks, for the sectarians in question, variously known as the Mandians, Mandites, Sabians, Nazareans, etc., call themselves Mandai Ayahai, that is to say, the disciples, or rather the wise men of John, the word Mandai being derived from the Chaldean word manda, corresponding to the Greek word or wisdom. The multiplicity of names given to the Mandians arises apparently from the fact that in their dealings with other communities, they took the name of Sabians, whilst they called the wise and learned amongst themselves Nazareans. The sect formerly inhabited the banks of the Jordan, but was driven out by the Muslims, who forced them to retire to Mesopotamia and Babylonia, where they particularly affected the neighborhood of rivers in order to be able to carry out their peculiar baptismal rites. There can be no doubt that the doctrines of the Mandians do resemble their description of the Johannite heresy as given by Eliphas Levi, though not by the order du Temple, and that the Mandians professed to be the disciples of St. John the Baptist, however not the Apostle, but were at the same time the enemies of Jesus Christ. According to the Mandians, Book of John, Sidra de Yahya, Yahya, that is to say, St. John, baptized myriads of men during forty years in the Jordan. By a mistake, or in response to a written mandate from heaven saying, Yahya baptized the liar in the Jordan, he baptized the false prophet, Yeshu, Mashiach, the Messiah Jesus, son of the devil Ruha, Kadeshita same idea is found in another book of the sect called the Book of Adam, which represents Jesus as the perverter of St. John's doctrine and the disseminator of iniquity and perfidy throughout the world. The resemblance between all this and the legends of the Talmud, the Kabbalah, and the Toldot Yeshu is at once apparent. Moreover, the Mandeans claim for the Book of Adam the same origin as the Jews claim for the Kabbalah. Namely, that it was delivered to Adam by God through the hands of the angel Razael. This book, known to scholars as the Codex Nazareus, is described by Munter as a sort of mosaic without order, without method, where one finds mentioned Noah, Abraham, Moses, Solomon, the Temple of Jerusalem, St. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Christians, and Muhammad. A matter, whilst denying any proof of the Templar succession from the Mandeans, nevertheless gives good reason for believing that the sect itself existed from the first centuries of the Christian era, and that its books dated from the 8th century. Further, that these Mandeans or Nazareans, not to be confounded with the pre-Christian Nazarites or Christian Nazarenes, were Jews who revered St. John the Baptist as the prophet of ancient Mosaism, but regarded Jesus Christ as a false messiah sent by the powers of darkness. Modern Jewish opinion confirms this affirmation of Judaic inspiration and agrees with matter in describing the Mandeans as Gnostics. Their sacred books are in the Aramaic dialects, which has close affinities with that of the Talmud of Babylon. The Jewish influence is distinctly visible in the Mandean religion. It is essentially of the type of ancient Gnosticism, traces of which are found in the Talmud, the Midrash, and, in a modified form, the later Kabbalah. It may be then regarded as certain that a sect existed long before the time of the Crusades, corresponding to the description of the Johannites given by Eliphas Levi, in that it was cabalistic, anti-Christian, yet professedly founded on the doctrines of one of the St. Johns. Whether it was by this sect that the Templars were indoctrinated must remain an open question. M. Matter objects that the evidence lacking to such a conclusion lies in the fact that the Templars expressed no particular reverence for St. John, but Louis Lair asserts that the Templars did prefer the Gospel of St. John to that of the other evangelists, and that modern Masonic lodges claiming descent from the Templars possess a special version of this Gospel, said to have been copied from the original on Mount Athos. It is also said that Baphomets were preserved in the Masonic lodges of Hungary, where a debased form of Masonry known as Johannite Masonry survives to this day. If the Templar heresy was that of the Johannites, the head in question might possibly represent that of John the Baptist, which would accord with the theory that the word Baphomet was derived from Greek words signifying baptism of wisdom. This would, moreover, not be incompatible with Louis Leur's theory of an affinity between the Templars and the Bulgamils, For the Bulgamils also possessed their own version of the Gospel of St. John, which they placed on the heads of their neophytes during the ceremony of initiation. Giving as the reason for the I Peculiar Veneration, they professed for its author that they regarded St. John as the servant of the Jewish god Setanel. Eliphas Leva even goes so far as to accuse the Templars of following the occult practices of the Luciferians, who carried the doctrines of the Bogomils to the point of paying homage to the powers of darkness. Let us declare for the edification of the vulgar, and for the greater glory of the Church which has persecuted the Templars, burned the magicians and excommunicated the Freemasons, etc., Let us say loudly and boldly that all the initiates of the occult sciences have adored, do, and will always adore that which is signified by this frightful symbol, the sabbatic goat. Yes, in our profound conviction, the grand masters of the order of the Templars adored Baphomet and caused him to be adored by their initiates. It will be seen, then, that the accusation of heresy brought against the Templars does not emanate solely from the Catholic Church, but also from the secret societies. Even our Freemasons, who, for reasons I shall show later, have generally defended the order, are now willing to admit that there was a very real case against them. Thus, Dr. Ranking, who has devoted many years of study to the question, has arrived at the conclusion that Johannism is the real clue to the Templar heresy. In a very interesting paper published in the Masonic Journal, Ars Quetor Coronatorum, he observes that the record of the Templars in Palestine is one long tale of intrigue and treachery on the part of the order. And finally, that from the very commencement of Christianity there has been transmitted through the centuries a body of doctrine incompatible with Christianity in the various official churches. That the bodies teaching these doctrines professed to do so on the authority of St. John, to whom, as they claimed, the true secrets had been committed by the founder of Christianity that during the Middle Ages the main support of the Gnostic bodies and the main repository of this knowledge was the Society of the Templars. What is the explanation of this choice of St. John for the propagation of anti-Christian doctrines, which we shall find continuing up to the present day? What else than the method of perversion, which in its extreme form becomes Satanism and consists in always selecting the most sacred things for the purpose of desecration? Precisely then, because the Gospel of St. John is the one of all the four which most insists on the divinity of Christ, the occult anti-Christian sects have habitually made it the basis of their rights. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for seven seventy-seven per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.